This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. action-packed, fun-filled episode of the podcast about the dark side of creative people who've all died. We're not doing anybody who's alive, and the rule is it's a year and a day before we touch anybody, but I, we got a good one today. I'm really yes. excited. This is yeah, our I'm darkness. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and I am Kevin Kautzman with my good friend and co-conspirator Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. swinging. Uh, This is going to be a good one. I've had a lot of fun researching this. Uh, This podcast takes me down rabbit holes I wouldn't uh, (laughs) dive into (laughs) otherwise. And here we are. So today we, you know, one of the things about Art of Darkness too is that we like to, we like to mix it up. We like to play the hits and we also like to bring you people you might not know about otherwise. But this I think falls into the category of the hits. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, Brad, I tell you what, man, you, you, you should have took care of me. I could have been some. I could have been a contender. I could have been a. Hey, Stella! Give me your best. Give me your best, Stella, Brad. Stella! So we're gonna do that again at the end of the episode and see if we we can get any of the magic of the yeah, great. We can live into it. Yeah. Late a little singular. Marlon Brando. Yeah. 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 Really, truly one of the great ones. Been uh, watching just, you know, I've seen a handful of the films he's been in and then just kind of watching some YouTube clips over the last day or so. Yeah. Powerhouse. Powerhouse actor. This is this episode's going to really dovetail well, I think, into the Tennessee Williams episode, because, of course, it was Streetcar that that really launched Brando into the stratosphere. Uh, So you can always go back into our archive at artofdarkpod.com. Check out the Tennessee episode. But uh, don't pause this one because no spoilers. You're going to, you know, the one's going to compliment the other. These are evergreen episodes. Uh, and I, yeah, I'm really excited about this. I have a theater background and I'm very interested in film. And uh, so I, I really can't wait to dig into it. I have, for references, I'm gonna, I am gonna dip in and out of the Wikipedia and then some different articles online. I found three books uh, about Brando at the library. And the one that I'm really gonna use is Brando's Songs My Mother Taught Me, which is the biography, the, the autobiography he wrote himself. So oh, hearing, excellent. Cool. Yeah, he wrote it with Robert Lindsay. I believe it came out in 1994. Uh, well, before I go any further, uh, Brad, what do you know about Marlon Brando? We always start with that question. Sure, yeah. Marlon Brando, uh, you know, great American actor, career spanning several decades with a number of iconic roles. Um, from Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront, uh, 
the godfather you know uh um, make him an offer he can't refuse yeah what's yeah. better than that what's better than that there's, there's nothing better yeah than that. it's incredible yeah. um and uh apocalypse now um, the horror yeah, yeah yeah known known for being uh the rare combination of a heartthrob and an eccentric um which you know i don't know how many other people fit into that into both those categories at the same time eccentric is is too mild a word <laughs> we need a new word this is uh we'll get into it yeah yeah so uh kind of ended his career sort of waning career and a little bit of dissolution you might say uh kind of adopted seemed to have adopted the sort of orson wells archetype of of just getting sort of heavy and corpulent the end. yeah corpulent that is yes. so funny that you say that i had that exact same thought just yeah. now i was yeah. thinking yeah mm-hmm. so uh but yeah i mean other than that i i guess i don't i, I kind of know what the average film fan knows i guess so yeah, yeah great okay well uh how much do you think they offered him uh to write his autobiography in the early 90s how much do you think they offered five million dollars you nailed it you nailed really? it that's exactly <laughs> what what <laughs> i've been paying a lot of attention to the publishing world lately, brad so. kelly is the book whisperer <laughs> holy moly you just picked that i am a strong sender yeah, well, oh, that's true. Yeah, I felt the vibes. So. You probably picked that up. But yeah, uh, yeah you're right. That's what he claimed that's that, that they offered him. Uh, yeah. There's an interview with an interview with the late uh, Marlon Brando. When I say late Brando, I'm really going to refer to early Brando and late Brando. And yeah, the break is, seems fair. is in the 70s. It's when he, when he moved to the island uh, mm. near Tahiti mm. uh, is really when late Brando germinated, gestated. Yeah. Um, I'm going to break this into three parts, like a play. And uh, that's the structure I've chosen for this. Uh, I think it's appropriate or, or a movie, um, mm -hmm. three acts. So the first act is going to be his, his childhood. Then we're going to talk about his life in the theater and then and, and in New York. And then we're going to talk about film and, and fame. So we're yeah. really going to get into it. Um, cool. Good. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, fantastic. So let me just, let's just start right at the beginning. Uh, he was born in 1924 uh, in Nebraska. Uh, if I'm, I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah. He was born on April 3rd in Omaha, Nebraska uh, to a, uh, his father, well, he was, he was nicknamed Bud and he was uh, technically uh, Marlo, uh, Marlon Brando Jr. Uh, it's funny, uh, on the Wikipedia, his father was Marlon Brando, a pesticide and chemical feed manufacturer. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Auspicious beginnings. Uh, indeed, yeah. yeah not, a, uh, not a blue check uh, yeah, father. Sure. Um, and then his mother was named Dorothy uh, Pennebaker. He okay. had two elder sisters. Uh, they're sort of Amera or Euromuts, uh, German, Dutch, English, Irish. Uh, an old American family, they arrived in the early 1700s and then on the other side arrived in 1660. He was raised as a, a Christian scientist. Oh, interesting. Okay. Although he would later effectively adopt Judaism, uh, he, he, be he became very, very interested in um, sort of Judaism and Jewish New York. He was 
believe, I think it was Stella Adler, his teacher, who was one of the progenitors of the method, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost sort of like adopted him as an honorary uh, Jew. He, mm-hmm. um, he, to the point where he effectively knew Yiddish. Um, wow. and it's an interesting part of his history that I'm not familiar with, and we'll get into it. Uh, now, Brando had a really difficult upbringing. Um, he, it, it, it was not easy. Um, here's a quote from, from the book here. His parents were both alcoholics. Mm. Um, the anguish that her drinking produced was that she preferred getting drunk to caring for us. Mm. So an alcoholic mother, Mm. um, the parents eventually uh, joined AA Brando really disliked his father and his father kind of really disliked him. Mm. So here's another quote. I was his namesake, but nothing I I did ever pleased or even interested him. He enjoyed telling me I couldn't do anything right. He had Mm. a habit of telling me I would never amount to anything. So in 1930, right, this is art of darkness. So we're going to get into the dark stuff. That's one thing about Brando. There's no dearth of that. We're not going to have any trouble finding it. Uh, That's where the genius comes from, really. Um, Well, around 1930, the parents moved to Evanston, Illinois. Uh, His father's work took him to Chicago, and then they separated um, when Brando was around 11. I have a quote here, or a uh, passage from the autobiography I want to read. This is Brando. My mother's drinking got worse in Evanston. Sometimes alcohol sent her into a crying jag, but initially it usually made her happy, giddy, and full of mirth. And she might sit down at the piano and sing to herself, and we often joined in. But she was seldom home. With Ermi gone, I was uh, alone a lot, and it was shortly after this that I found myself behaving in odd ways. I was failing in school. I was truant. I became a vandal and trashed houses that were being renovated. I shot birds, burned insects, slashed tires, and stole money. At the same time, I began finding myself not wanting to go home and spent most of my time at the house of Jimmy Ferguson, a classmate and longtime friend, or at the house of a Greek family who lived up the block and across the alley. I also began to stammer so noticeably that I was taken to Northwestern University for speech therapy where I was treated unsuccessfully. With my BB gun, I accidentally shot a chauffeur and I also shot the big bay window in our house and cracked it, which brought a ferocious reaction from my father. So troubled, a troubled- Yeah, angry young man. Angry young man, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, so I think we can can start to uh, paint a picture of what we're dealing with here. I have an article from GQ magazine uh, talking a little further about his relationship to his father. Uh, It says here, Brando loathed his father. It was a hatred that frothed and boiled underneath his skin like only bad blood between relatives can. And this is going to be a theme in his life because Brando had many children uh, by numerous different women, and uh, it did not end well for at least for at least two of them. Um, we'll get to it. Uh, this is a, a case of no amount of money, no amount of fame will prevent real horror from visiting you in life. Uh, and Brando's a, a very good case of that. So yeah, man, we're seeing a, a little bit of a theme here with this in the cash episode, where uh, you know dads and prospective dads out there, you should uh, just every once in a while encourage your kid. Every once in a while, <laughs> say, "Hey, that was pretty good." You know, <laughs> hey, good job. Hey, I really I mean, like I guess that unless film. You, 
Yeah, unless yeah. you want them to be like a one of a kind artist, then I don't know. Maybe you should treat them like crap. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I just don't know. I think there's there has to be some sort of a ba- of a balance there. But yeah, to to give you an idea of the how how much vitriol he carried throughout his life for his father. When his first son was born, he said, this would be many years later, I'm jumping around, but he said, I didn't want my father to get near Christian. Mm -hmm. The day he was born, I said to myself with tears in my eyes, my father is never going to come near that child (sighs) because of the damage he has done to me. Wow. Uh, Wow. Yeah. Brutal. And um, that's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's one thing a, a kid who got kicked around one way they can get revenge, right? Is mm-hmm. just deny them the, the, the lineage. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well yeah. later, and there's an anecdote I'll, I'll get to, I think later, but uh, he, he would keep his father around and ultimately he would forgive his, his father uh, in his, in his heart. I don't know if in his lifetime it ever really, if they ever had like a serious reconciliation, but his father, at one point had an affair with one of his secretaries after he had achieved fame. Um, Brand, he had an affair with one of Brando's secretaries. Oh, so we're, we're not dealing with the most, um, <laughs> uh, you know, emotionally uh, stable people here. Yeah. Geez. Um, well, so Brando was having a lot of trouble in school. Uh, this is an, another interesting one too, because like Kubrick here, we have somebody who's really not excelling at school. Although Kubrick was less of a difficult uh, uh, young man. I'm going to read some, some more from the autobiography. Uh, at Libertyville High, I was a bad student, chronic truant, and all-around incorrigible. I was forever being sent to the principal's office to be disciplined. Mr. Underbrink didn't like me much and seated me behind, uh, and seated behind his big wooden desk with a stern, worn look on his face. He gave me one lecture after another. My homeroom teacher, Mr. Russell, was just as enraged by my contempt for authority, and his response was to belittle me. Once he lost his temper and shook me as hard as he could and announced to the class that I had an IQ of 90 and that I had better pay attention if I wanted to keep up with the rest of the class. Hmm. I didn't try hard because I was bored and irritated. Hmm. He had to uh, repeat his sophomore year. Wow. Um, He he said he always had friends, but... uh, the parents treated him like he was poison. He was anathema to the, to the teachers. Uh, this is interesting. Though I didn't realize it then, I was beginning to discover one of the realities of life. Members of almost every group in human society try hard to convince themselves that they are superior to the other groups, whether they are religions, nations, neighboring tribes in the rainforest, or members of rival, rival suburban country clubs who claim that membership in their club proves they have a higher social standing than those in others. The caste system may be more highly developed in countries like India or England, but every tier of society and almost every culture tries to dominate a group it perceives as beneath it. In Libertyville, I was in the caste right near the bottom. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so he he would draw on these experiences uh, later throughout his body of work, and it's sure. all on celluloid, and we get to enjoy it. Uh, we'll, I'm laying the groundwork here to to talk a little more deeply about some of the films that we're going to get to that are maybe a little even a little more obscure than the ones everyone knows. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a Minnesota connection here, which I think is fun. So uh, I'm reading again from the bio. My father's solution to my difficulties at Libertyville High was to send me to the same school he had once attended. 
Shattuck Military Academy in Faribault, Minnesota. He thought that discipline would benefit me greatly. Mm. Uh, <laughs> my tenure at Shattuck was probably faded from the beginning to be short. By then I was rebelling against any authority and against any conformity in general with every ounce of energy in my body. Mm. Does that ever work for some kids? Do <laughs> How do you mean? Like, does it work where like, you know what, that kid just needs some discipline and then you send them and they get, they get it and it works. I, I, you know, it probably does break certain types. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if you don't have like an artistic streak in your, in your body and yeah. you're, you just go, you know what, for, I'm going to join the, and there's nothing wrong with this per no, se, but no. now I'm going to go into the military now. I'm going to try to become an officer or I'm going to uh, go work in sales. I mean, not right, everybody right. has the, the um, cojones that somebody like Brando did uh, because he would then promptly from here uh, go, go on to, to his career uh, mm. with a little, little interlude and you're, we're getting ahead of the next passage. I'll read it. Mm. So uh, now you have to understand too, I want to make sure I'm getting the years right here. Uh, he was born in 24. So what does that put him right up yeah, in world, world war two, the yeah. big one, yeah. the, the big kahuna, the big mm -hmm. daddy. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did he avoid it? Uh, at the induction, uh, induction center, a doctor asked me if I had any physical problems. Sometimes my knee bothers me a little, I said. I'd injured it in a football scrimmage at Shattuck when someone tackled me from behind and snapped the semilunar cartilage, which had been removed. Mm. The doctor grabbed my leg and pulled it sideways, causing my knee to spin a little like a ball in a socket. Oof. Oof. Sorry, son. You've got a trick knee, he said. You're 4F. Ooh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Dodged a bullet. Yeah, for real. Thanks, yes. guy who tackled me from behind. <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, right. Lucy pulled the football away and uh, Charlie Brown doesn't have to go and uh, uh, Garrett the Krauts in the trenches or whatever it is. That right. was more World War One, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Point stands. All right. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have to uh, go face the tanks. Yeah. Uh, well, so here we are. Now we're kind of coming up uh, up to the end of uh, of Act One. There is um, a friendship that I have to uh, to mention here. Uh, when he was in Illinois, he made friends with a fellow named Wally Cox. Uh, and I'll read a little bit about Wally. Wally uh, Brando, who was called Bud at this point, was a mimic from his youth. Uh, he developed an ability to absorb the mannerisms of children he played with and display them dramatically while staying in character. Mm. Uh, at, around that time when he was younger, he was introduced to neighborhood boy Wally Cox and the two were very close friends and they would remain close friends um, for, for decades. I just want to mm. introduce Wally as a character because Wally's going to be his roommate uh, and, and they will stay in touch um, mm. for decades. So, all right. So he's 4F. Let's put ourselves in time here. We're in the, the early 40s. Boy from Omaha bit of a stutter, uh, alcoholic parents, total truant, uh, had to redo his sophomore year, sent to a military academy. And my parents bravely sat, uh, sat me down and asked what I was going to do now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the eternal problem, right? Yeah. What are we going to do with these, this young man? What right. is he going to do? I don't know, I said, but I had a few ideas. The previous Christmas, I'd visited my sisters in New York 
And afterward, I wrote Franny, I like New York and I'm going to live there when I start living. God, I wish I were there. It is the most fascinating town in the world. Mm -hmm. He's not wrong. My mother said it was important for me to decide what I wanted to do with my life. And my father, right, I love this. You're 17, you're 18 years old. Got to figure out what you're doing to do with your life. Right. Uh, (laughs) And my father offered to pay for my education to learn a trade. Since the only thing I had ever done except sports that anyone had praised me for was acting, I told them, why don't I go to New York and try to be an actor? (laughs) Ha ha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. All right. So it's a story, a story as old as time, right? Yeah. This young man and he's going to go make it in the big city. Uh, And so we've got to really kind of put ourselves there. Uh, He, he arrives in New York city. Uh, He, (laughs) he went to his sister's apartment in Greenwich village, spring of 1943 in a red fedora. And he thought he was going to knock everybody dead. Right. <laughs> it, it was gonna. It was just gonna be Marlon Brando's town. Right. It, it took him a while, but eventually it was true, which is yeah, quite funny. Sure. Right. Um, he he writes about getting uh, drunk for the first time in Washington Square. He talks about going to Brooklyn and a party, uh, and then this is funny. This is a good story, so I'll tell this anecdote. Um, one afternoon, I went to. This is Brando. One afternoon, I went to a cafeteria on 4th Street and 7th Avenue and sat down beside two men. When we started talking, one man spoke with a thick Texas accent, and I asked him where he was from. New York, he said. How did you get that Texas accent, I asked. I was in the Army. But why would you get a Texas accent in the (laughs) Army? I'm sure I had a look of puzzlement on my face. It was protective coloration, he said. Because if you were a Jew in the army, they called you all kinds of names, teased you and made it hard on you. So I pretended to be a Texan. He said he had been out of the army for about eight months, but still hadn't broken the habit. Then we introduced ourselves. He told me his name was Norman Mailer. And the other man said he was Jimmy Baldwin. So he meets Norman Mailer, who's unpublished, um, and James Baldwin. And... He's now beginning to move, yeah, in a very urbane milieu uh, around Kubrick time, too. So we can kind of put ourselves, we want to go check out the Kubrick episode. That was quite a, uh, a deep dive, I think. Yeah. And we're right here in this war period. Uh, and Brando begins to move in these, I guess what you would call ethnic circles, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a theme that would... Uh, move throughout his entire life and career. He was an earnest advocate of civil rights, and he would later famously be uh, a very strong advocate of Indian rights, right. Native American rights. Uh, we will, we're going to listen to one piece of audio here uh, during the middle of this podcast, and that's going to re- relate directly to that. Okay. So Brando was, while abnormally empathetic toward uh, minorities. And uh, I th- probably because he himself identified with the, um, the outsider. And yeah, and I would think you come to New York and, and uh, you don't necessarily relate to maybe the more waspy contingent mm. either, right? It's like, well, I'm not the, those people. I, my dad sold pesticide in, in Nebraska. Like, <laughs> yeah, interesting. We're going to have to get into Brando's sexuality during okay. this podcast. And it's going to be, uh, <laughs> it's going to be, 
it's going to be pretty rich because Brando was definitely bisexual and Brando, if Brando were a woman and, and, and I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender here. Brando was a whore. (laughs) He was Brando was whorish. He was probably a sex addict. You could, again, yeah. And, but he had the looks and then eventually the fame and the money to kind of back it up, though of Maybe, course it yeah. didn't didn't necessarily end well for for all of the children. Um, yeah. And I want to be sensitive here too. People are this is a, a sensitive topic, but you cannot divorce sex and sexuality from Brando's identity and even his screen presence and what he was renowned for. Yeah. Uh, the whole point of Streetcar was that sort of raw, horrible sexuality at the heart yeah. of of Stanley's character. And of course it's a play that features a rape at the center of it. Right. Uh, right. So there's a funny story and Brando, he had no uh, hesitation. He would, he'd screw your wife. He'd screw your girlfriend. And then he would (laughs) sort of just chuckle about it. He, He didn't feel any guilt or any very, very odd, unusual, but I think it comes from that rebellion because there's, there are a few ways in America to rebel harder uh, than to have that that sexuality. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. Li- the list of people that he slept with um, is like an A list of, of celebrities at the That's time. Wild. He yeah. he got with Marilyn. Yeah. Okay. And this is later. Getting ahead yeah. of things. Um, yeah. He and James Dean had a thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then famously later Richard Pryor. Uh, oh, you know, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Joey Diaz talks about that on Rogan and talks about how when that came out, how all the Italians in New Jersey had to go and burn all the Godfather <laughs> DVDs. <laughs> they were losing it. Um, but and the a, James Dean one, if you, somebody had the tape of that, that would be worth, uh, ooh, be worth some well, dough. We're going to get into that. I'm, I'm getting a little out of order here because sure. he's still uh, a baby New Yorker. But here's right. a story. In the apartment next to my sister's lived a woman named Estrelita Rosa Maria Consuelo Cruz. Whoa. I called her Luke. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> she was Colombian and 10 or 15 years older than me. She was olive-skinned, fetching, extremely artistic, and a great cook. Her husband was overseas with the Marines, and one night she invited me for dinner. There was a fireplace, candlelight, and wine, and I lost my virginity. Mm. Luke was extremely passionate and sexually unconventional. She never wore underpants. And we'd often walk down a street in New York, duck in an alley and have at it. Wow. At the ballet one night, she put her hand uh, down Mm. my pants and I put uh, my hand up her skirt. And uh, she yipped and tittered so loudly that others in the audience must have wondered about her. After her husband came back from overseas, he learned about our affair and divorced her. Our friendship lasted many years. <laughs> she was very important to, to me then, but after her, there were many other women in my life. So, yeah, okay. he's, he's, uh, he's in New York City. He's a boy from Omaha. He is a, he's a 10. He's yeah. handsome. He's yeah. fit. Yeah. Uh, he, he's got an accent. He's probably got big, big puppy eyes. He's mm-hmm. naive mm-hmm. and he's troubled. Catnip. Right. right. Yeah, Catnip. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is interesting. Uh, I want to make sure I get through the theater. Yeah, I'll, 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 this is important to read. This is good stuff. So uh, he's enjoying his freedom, but he writes a letter home uh, 
in the fall, and this is the letter home, he would go to the new school uh, for a period. School starts tomorrow, and I'm very, uh, very glad because I've been plenty antsy for a long time. Oh, he absolutely struggled with depression, anxiety, very seriously, uh, to the point where he would have a breakdown doing streetcar, and he would have a relationship with psychiatrists for most of his life. He would see different different, um, therapists. Um, The method, I think, you know what method acting is? Yeah, I mean, method acting, the sort of stereotype is it's it's, uh, when you hear stories about uh, actors who never break character until the film's over, Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of a, a cartoonish uh, representation of it. Um, yeah. But I, I guess on the practical level, I don't know. But it's basically you live the character. I think that's a, that's a fair summary. Yeah. Um, yeah. What does uh, Robert Johnny Jr.'s character say in Tropic Thunder? I don't drop character. I don't drop character until they uh, release the DVD commentary. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a funny movie, man. I might I might rewatch that. I've been yeah. I've been watching all the Brando stuff, and yeah, it's, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it it comes from Stella Adler, and uh, it says here the technique is founded on an actor's ability to imagine a character's world. Uh, her technique encourages the actors to expand their understanding of the world in order to create compelling performances. Mm. Uh, so we'll get into that a little further. Um, but for now, so he's writing his parents. He's got anxiety. Uh, he's mm. saying, I've been <laughs> plenty antsy for a long time. What with bitter bus drivers, pacifists, philosophers, kooks, funny people, New York, and myself. Ah, mm. New York. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing changes. Yeah. Uh, oh, God, round and round I go looking for an answer of some kind. No answer, no nothing. I've tried relaxing, but it's still the same. I've gone nuts thinking about truth and its aspects. I don't get anything. Nothing adds up. There is so damn much bitterness and fear and hate and untruths all around me. I want to do something about it. It makes me mad when I get scared of sticking my neck out. If you try to be good and thoughtful and kind and truthful, people call you a liar and suspect mm. you and resent you and hate you. That's that Midwestern credulity when it yeah. uh, comes face to face with the sort of bitter, tough edge of New York City. Yeah. There are all these rules that you aren't aware of. Right. Um, and he would point out that it would have a lot to do with... Um, well, he would, he would, this is where he really began to encounter um, Jewish people in New York. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to it. Um, I try my damnedest to understand and forgive, but if I were to put into words and actions what I sometimes feel, it would cost me my life almost. Society won't let you be decent because they're so goddamned afraid all the time. I've tried to be smart and stay on the line, but it makes me feel as though I weren't living up to my own ideas and principles. I'm going to miss the fall at home and the apples and leaves and smells and stuff. I've got a lump in my throat now just thinking about it. Love, hmm. bud. Hmm. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, if you've ever moved to a, a strange place uh, to try to make a life um, yeah. as no, a young person. A, you can sympathize with that for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that letter was good because it really begins to paint a picture. Um, so we're going to move really quickly to the new school here. And uh, to some of his thinking about, about uh, Jews is very interesting. So I attended the new school for social, social research for only a year, but what a year it was. The school in New York itself had become a sanctuary for hundreds of extraordinary European Jews who had fled Germany and other countries before and during World War II. And they were enriching the city's intellectual life with an intensity that has probably never been equaled anywhere during a comparable period of time. I was raised largely by these Jews. 
I lived in a world of Jews. They were my teachers. They were my employers. They were my friends. They introduced me to a world of books and ideas that I didn't know existed. I stayed up all night with them, asking questions, arguing, probing, discovering how little I knew, learning how inarticulate I was and how abysmal my education was. Mm. I hadn't even finished high school, and many, many of them had, had advanced degrees from the finest institutes in Europe. I felt dumb and ashamed, but they gave me an appetite to learn everything. They made me hungry for information. I believe that if I had more knowledge, I'd be smarter, which I now realize isn't true. He read Kant, Rousseau, Nietzsche, Locke, Melville, Tolstoy, Faulkner, Dostoevsky, and books by dozens of other authors, many of which I never understood. Mm. <laughs> um, I like a- the humility of that. Like, yeah, I read it. I didn't get it. But yep. yeah, yep. well, it makes me think. So he didn't even finish high school. He, he, he had access to this great education. Man, you're not getting into new school in 2021 if you didn't finish high school. Like, no, but it was, a, a, yeah, it, yeah, it's a, it's a different time. Yeah, for uh, sure. He goes on here talking about the, this experience of being immersed in Jewish New York. Uh, he talks about a Yiddish word, seshel. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, maybe sechel. That provides a key to explaining the most profound aspects of Jewish culture. It means to pursue knowledge and to leave the world a better place than when you entered it. Mm. Jews revere education and hard work. See, he came to the conclusion that uh, in the end, being Jewish was a cultural phenomenon rather than a genetic one. It's a Mm. state of mind. Uh, So he really uh, appreciated it. And it would color and influence influence his life and his politics. He also goes on, because he can't help himself, uh, to talk about how there was a tradition of um, sort of Jewish, young Jewish women setting themselves up uh, in an apartment for a year or two before really digging into a career Mm -hmm. um, and how he would sleep with all of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> Again. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so he, he's learning a lot out, sure. in, uh, out in New York City. Yeah, man. Uh, so we're, he fools around with the idea of being, um, being a, uh, a dancer. Okay. Fools around with that briefly. Um, and it's actually his, his pal, Wally Cox, who they end up living together in New York City. They're roommates. His pal uh, sends him to Stella Adler. Says you should okay. you should go and and um, you know study acting with her. So Stella Adler is one of the one of the major act you know acting teachers uh, mm-hmm. in in history. Just a just a very very big deal. Um, and uh, her method obviously influenced Brando, and then through Brando would influence everyone. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's worth pausing to say he's the, he's the Elvis of, uh, of acting, uh, or or like the Elvis and the Johnny Cash of acting. There's nobody in terms of film acting, uh, that the generations following would refer to with the same reverence. Uh, we're still in the theater phase. So this is act two in New York city, the theater. Uh, but when we get to the film phase, uh, there's some really incredible stuff that we'll, we'll dig into. But so, Here's what he says about method acting uh, and Stella. So uh, Stella always said no one could teach acting, but she could. She had a knack for teaching people about themselves, enabling them to use their emotions and bring out their hidden sensitivity. This is one of the things that you talk about in the method and that he would talk about. He would 
you would take a scene and you would draw on personal experiences to bring an emotional authenticity to the scene. So you're inhabiting a character, but you're filling the character with your own experiences while inhabiting the world of the character. Um, yeah, and I can see that being, uh, you know, you watch a film from the 30s or 40s and they, they don't, the acting performances don't have that, I would say, for the most part. Right, and yeah. the first film that he would go on to make after his resounding success on Broadway with Streetcar was a film called The Men, okay. and we'll, we'll get to it because okay. yeah. it's really hard to watch. You have Brando <laughs> acting yeah. in the Brando method, yeah. Cast against actors acting in the older method. Right, right. So they're they're you know, in their mid Atlantic accents and yes. sort of snappy and yeah. Yep, yeah. precisely. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Okay, that's uh, cool. so here's what he has to say about the method. Uh, method acting was a term popularized, bastardized, and misused by Lee Strasberg. This is another thing. This acting, this whole acting teacher milieu at the yeah. time in New York City, people still trace their lineage back to these people, and it's like karate guys arguing right. about which sensei could <laughs> right, beat up right. which other sensei. Right, so. right, right. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of Strasbourg too. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I, I kind of vaguely know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he really didn't like Lee Strasberg. Okay. What Stella taught her students was how to discover the nature of their own emotional mechanics and therefore those of others. She taught me to be real and not to try to act out an emotion I didn't personally experience during a performance. Mm. You're not, don't fake the emotion. Yeah, you have to get scene. to the place where you have actually have the emotion. Yes. Yeah. Because of Stella, and Stella Adler would be a great episode. Uh, yeah. Acting changed completely during the 50s and 60s. Until the generation she inspired came along, most actors were what I have always thought of as personality actors uh and he names some names george bernard shaw once said a character actor is one who cannot act and there, therefore makes an elaborate study of disguise and stage tricks by which acting can be grotesquely simulated a lot yeah. of actors believe that by growing a beard checking out a robe from the wardrobe department and carrying a staff they could become <laughs> moses <laughs> uh so yeah, he, uh, he learns his craft here, and uh, he, he begins to do a few plays. Uh, how is he sort of financing this? I mean, or maybe, you know, what is he, hmm. how is he paying to go to Stella Adler? You know, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, it, yeah. it, it isn't entirely clear to me. I think he may have some support from his family. Okay, uh, okay. Let me see if I can find anything um, in, the, in the near term here. I also want to get... Uh, a clear sort of, it's a good question. I, I'd like to know because isn't this yeah. often the case, you know, where you, you kind of wonder hmm, how are you funding this? I, again, also though, this is a, this is a different time. It it's like, time. how did yeah. you wait? How did you Hemingway move to Paris for a year, rent right. an apartment? <laughs> oh, I sold some magazine stories. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I worked in a post office for three months and then <laughs> right, you know, and I saved yeah. up some money and <laughs> right. my grandfather <laughs> left me a hundred dollars and right. Yeah. Right. Right. right yeah. Right. Um, well, so he, uh, we're in his early career, 44 through 51. He, he would do some summer stock theater uh, in, on Long Island. He also established a pattern of erratic insubordinate behavior, mm, okay. <laughs> which this would last his, his entire life. And we get in, when we get into act three, the film period, 
uh, we're really going to have some have some fun sure. stories. Yeah. He got uh, kicked out of a cast of the New School's production in Sayville. Mm. Um, he found a locally produced play there. He did that. Then he did a play um, in 44. He made it to Broadway. Uh, he had looks. Brando yeah. had looks. Yeah. Uh, and I would say too, and the, you know, this is not, I don't think this is too controversial. The, the theater audiences in this period in New York City were overwhelmingly um, Jewish. There was a, mm-hmm. a, a rich Jewish middle class okay. um, that would support the theater um, mm-hmm. in, uh, in New York City. And uh, so there's a quality of like otherness to Brando. He's this kind of this hayseed uh, from, from the Midwest. So he's, he's got the looks, he's moving in the right circles and he starts to get some parts. So he does a play called um, I Remember Mama. Then he would, in, in 1946, he was in a, a political drama called A Flag is Born, which was highly, uh, highly political. And it was all about the the formation of Israel, the aspiration oh, to Israel. Okay. So let's, I'm going to read a quote from him about this from the book. Everyone in a flag was bo- is born was Jewish except me. Paul Mooney, the star, gave an astonishing performance, the best acting I have ever seen. I was on stage with him and he gave me goosebumps. His performance was magical and affected me deeply. He likes the word magic too. Brando, okay. Brando was a mystic. Okay. Yeah, he was a mystic. Um, His performance was magical and affected me deeply. He was the only actor who ever moved me to leave my dressing room and watch him from the wings. He never failed to chill me with one particular speech. I played a young Jewish firebrand named David, struggling to find his way to Palestine. In a graveyard, he meets the wounded and dying Tevya, a prophet-like man played by Mooney, who tries to help him but dies. David covers him with a Jewish flag, then exits, presumably to carry on the fight to make a homeland in Palestine. At the beginning of the second act, I had a speech during which a sharp light came down from above and two other lights hit me from the side. It was a fiery accusatory speech that began with a pause. I waited a long time after the curtain went up that quietly said, where were you? I paused again and said, where were you, Jews? Another long pause, and then I started to yell at the top of my lungs, where were you Jews when six million Jews were being burned to death in the ovens? Where were you? It sent chills through the audience, which was almost always all Jewish. Because at the the time, there was a great deal of soul searching within the Jewish community over whether they had done enough to stop the slaughter of their people. Some argued that they should have applied pressure on President Roosevelt to bomb Auschwitz, for example. So the speech touched a sensitive nerve. At some performances, Jewish girls got out of their seats and screamed and cried from the aisles in sadness. And at one, when I asked, where were you when six million Jews were being burned to death in the ovens of Auschwitz, a woman was so overcome with anger and guilt that she rose and shouted back at me, where were you? (laughs) um so he he's becoming politicized too and he's he's imbibing the politics of uh this this social circle in new york city and he would be a lefty a pretty hardcore lefty type um so yeah so he becomes uh sort of involved in in those politics uh he admits that this is just a, a a piece of propaganda I mean, he did, he did a propaganda play, but he's, you know, he's, uh, he's in the theater. And now, of course, we're coming to the great coup, uh, which, which everybody's familiar. Well, most people, are, if, you, if you listen to the um, Tennessee Williams episode, you'll, you'll be familiar with it. Uh, streetcar. 
Mm-hmm. So, so what year? What year is that streetcar? Uh, let me let me make sure that I get it right. Uh, let's see here. So that was his. So, was that his first actual film that he was in? Well, no. It, it, uh, streetcar was the second film. So we're okay. still in the theater here. Okay. Uh, yeah. No worries. I want to make sure I get get the year right don't for to, streetcar. Don't mean to scramble you. No, no. It's all good. Um, right. So 1948, and he is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he's 24 years old mm-hmm. uh, and he he's cast in probably the greatest play of its generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he was in the, like the Broadway was, version. Yes. Okay. This is okay. the thing that made him the okay. thing that made Great. him famous. Uh, so he's using the method. He's, he's cast in streetcar. It is, he's starring against uh, Jessica Tandy uh in that and i mean it's an absolute uh triumph Hmm. um it opened at the ethel barrymore theater in new york december 3rd 1947 Mm -hmm. had tryouts in new haven boston and philly so they're moving it around working on it working on it and he's saying my sister still has a telegram i sent to my father from boston oh well here's an answer to your earlier question yeah Need money by tonight. Show splendid. Letter to follow Marlon. <laughs> send Bitcoin. Yeah, right. Yeah, send, send Floki. Um, <laughs> after the opening night in New York, we went to the Russian Tea Room and read the reviews, starting with the New York Times. Before long, all the reviews were in and everyone relaxed. Uh, we had a hit. Ooh, what a heady atmosphere. I'm just picturing this. You go into the Russian Tea Room. It's 1947. You're, t- you know... 24 years old. Right, right, man. In the World War II is just kind of, a, yeah, that's, that's a scene. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, so he's, I want to read a little more from him about this. He's saying, we had a wonderful play under us and it was a big success. An actor can never act his way out of a bad play, no matter how well he performs. If he doesn't have real drama beneath him, he can act his best all day and, and it won't work. He could have the 12 disciples in the cast and Jesus Christ playing the lead and still get bad reviews if the play is poorly written. Sure. An actor can help a play, but he can't make it a success. In A Streetcar Named Desire, we had under us one of the best written plays ever produced, and we couldn't miss. Mm. Uh, mm. Well, so now, <laughs> now, he's, now he's famous. Now money's going to start to come in. And um, he... Uh, this is, but he also started to have a breakdown as he was working on Streetcar because he was channeling the energy uh, from his troubled relationship to his own father mm. in order to do the play. Well, yeah, I can see the method. At, the method has got to be sort of psychically dangerous, right? You spend enough time occupying the space of. Yeah. whatever it is you know it's one thing if it's like well i'm doing a method of a little girl in a field but the, you know you're doing the method of a rapist of intense trouble yes. you know angry person um yeah right Oof. i have an article uh from the telegraph here that i want to read uh so brando was a wayward youth and dyslexic high school dropout Arriving on a train from Nebraska, the 18-year-old initially slept on the streets of New York. I don't know how wow. true that is, but he, he, you know, he had his sisters there. But, but, uh, but a more complex picture soon emerged of a raw genius with a desperation to learn and seek truth. Brando was already an acute observer of behavior. 
wandering the streets to study people from bankers to longshoremen to hobos. When he joined the nurturing environment of Stella Adler's acting class at the New School, he seized the opportunity to educate himself, devouring books and developing a love of academia that would endure a lifetime. And that's true. In the final interview uh, with Larry King, and we'll get to this at the very end, but Larry King talks about uh, how he went to Brando's home and there was not a sign that Brando was a famous actor in the home. Mm. It was a lot of books. He said a lot of books on architecture. Brando mm. was interested in that. Uh, and, and if you watch, and I, I do encourage you, if you're interested in Brando as a character, we do have some great media uh, about him. Just go to YouTube and look up Marlon Brando or Marlon Brando interview. There are some really, really fun ones. Um, he, he was very combative in interviews and his favorite sort of trick was, so I don't know if it was a trick, but his favorite sort of thing was to point out how strange it was to even be doing the interview. He was one of these people like, <laughs> right. well, we're, and, and this stems from something that he would say, in which, which he firmly believed that everyone's always acting. Mm. We're all always acting. And he would say yeah. things to like Connie Chung or to, or to um, Dick Cavett. Uh, the Dick Cavett interview was very fun. That was around the Native American activism. We'll okay. come to that. Um, or Larry King, you know, he would say, no, you're acting all the time. All right. right. Uh, these poor interview interviewers would always come back and say, well, but Marlon, you know, that's, you do something different. He's like, no, it's no different. No, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, to, to be a genius level actor would be to, to understand that very deeply, right? To understand the performative aspect of everything all the time. Yes, yeah, indeed. Interesting. Well, I'm still in the Telegraph article here, but uh, Brando learned from Adler the revolutionary method technique that urged the actor to draw upon their own memories and experience, experiences to create a more realistic and naturalistic portrayal. His reservoirs of past emotion ran deeper than most and he proved a precocious student. His electrifying stage performance in Streetcar would be the very reenactment of his own traumatic childhood memories. Wow. Yeah. Well, so Streetcar ran for two years. It was a sellout. And uh, again, I'm still in the Telegraph article. This is actually gonna be a, a good segue for us to go from act two to act three. We're going to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Streetcar was a sellout sensation, but he left Broadway for Hollywood. Now, the myth is that he jumped for the money, mm -hmm. uh, but the tapes they're referring to here, so there were uh, sort of some very, very long tape recordings of Brando that had, were only recently discovered. Um, he, he claimed that the channeling of his father's violence every night had driven him to the point of a nervous breakdown. Wow. Wow. <sighs> yeah. So... Hey. Now yeah, the yeah. price of success a little bit there, right? Like, right. What, what is it? Where do you got to go? How deep do you got to go to to make this happen? To 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 have a career like this, to have that, you know, standing ovations at your performances. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, yeah. I and I want to read from the biography to kind of the final thing in this New York acting theater period. Uh, of course, there were advantages to success in a Broadway play and not merely the $550 a week paycheck. He says it'd be about $5,000 in the yeah. 90s. Not, not bad, bad per week. Yeah. Although I told my father when I was rehearsing for The Eagle Has Two Heads that I wanted to look after my own financial affairs, he persuaded me that I was not only too busy, but too inexperienced with money to handle it properly. So I turned my check over to him. Oh. <laughs> yeah, whoops. 
Uh, he paid my rent, gave me pocket change, and invested the money. Uh, the money that came with a streetcar named Desire was less important to me, however, than something else. Every night after the performance, there would be seven or eight girls waiting okay. in my dressing room. I looked them over and chose one for the night. I was a 24-year-old who was eager to follow his loins wherever it would go. (laughs) It was wonderful. It was more than that. To be able to get just about any woman I wanted into bed was intoxicating. I loved Mm. parties, danced, played the congas, and I loved to be with women. Any woman, anybody's wife. Sometimes, (laughs) Marlon... Yeah. So you've got this kind of somewhat schizoid uh, character here. He's very interested in arts and the intellectual, and we're going to leave the world a better place than we found it in this sort of Jewish tradition. But also, I am sleeping with your wife. Right. I will destroy your family on a whim. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So he's a a complicated character. Yeah, for sure. Uh, A walking me too. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes I did insane things. When I lived on the 11th floor of an apartment building on 72nd Street, I gave a party one night where just about everyone, including me, was smashed or close to it. And I went over to a window, opened it, and shouted to my guests, I'm sick of this world and everything in it. I can't stand you people. I'm sick of this life. I stepped out the window and disappeared. I stood on a ledge about six inches wide beneath the window, ducked and lay flat against the wall and clung to the windowsill with my hands. Then I held onto a cement balustrade on the window on the side of the building with one hand and let go of the windowsill. My guests screamed. They thought I'd become a blotter on 72nd Street. I hid Jeez. under the window giggling, then looked down, saw the street and gulped. Everyone was still <laughs> screaming and one girl finally ran over to the window and looked up and down 72nd Street, searching for my body before spotting me. Then she said, go ahead, drop, see if I care. I crawled back up laughing. Everybody was red in the face. Their veins were popping out of their foreheads and everyone shook their fists at me. It was nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I was fearless after two or three drinks. So, uh, yeah, he's he's got too much money. And, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. okay, so, and then he he talks a little more about discovering uh, women who have daddies Mm. uh, and, uh, and all the rest of it. Wow. Now we got a star on our hands. Yeah, right. And all the problems that come with it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to move into into act three of of Marlon Brando. And uh, he is lured out to Hollywood. He does do a film called The Men. Have you ever heard of The Men? I've never heard of The Men, no. Yeah, uh, I watched this last night. Uh, I think it's worth... um, talking a little bit about 1950 American drama, Fred Zinneman directed this uh, and it didn't do well commercially, but critics praised it. Uh, the film opens with a dedication. This is the dedication and this is good because it puts us in time. Yeah. Again, here's the dedication. It's a very serious film, right? Mm-hmm. In all wars since the beginning of history, there have been men who fought twice. The first time they battled with club, sword or machine gun. The second time, they had none of these weapons. Yet this by far, uh, what is the greatest battle? It was fought with a biting face and rock courage, and in the end, victory was achieved. This is the story of such a group of men. To them, this film is dedicated. So it's a film about the uh, men, the yeah, men okay. <laughs> during World War II, 
uh, a lieutenant is shot in the spine by a sniper. And oh, okay. it's all set in a hospital. And it's about, uh, and it actually includes some of the, the men uh, at the Birmingham Veterans Administration Hospital. Oh, okay. um, the film was, was made there. And this is a good uh, point. Brando checked himself in to get the role down. So he didn't just imagine it. He actually yeah. checked himself into this hospital in order to research the, the subject. Yeah. Matter. You want to get the mm-hmm. rhythms and the terms mm-hmm. and the, and the stir craziness and the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And if you're interested in Brando, this isn't the worst film ever made. Uh, it's, it's got a little <laughs> high, bit that's of high a, praise. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, Brando made a lot of stinkers. Yeah, I, I've, yeah. I've been subjected to some, well, dude, you know, the fifties, I know we all love to, um, to praise, you know, old Hollywood films, but what we really mean is we're praising like the five to 10% of them that hold up at all. Like if there was a lot of junk being cracked out back then. If yeah. that, and Br- Brando is a, is a great example. Uh, there's going to be a period after, uh, one of the films he makes bombs horribly where I'll read a list of the, of the, uh, the films that he made uh, for the following 10 years, and you probably won't know the name of a single one of them. Wow, okay. Uh, because it's just, it's, it's just not on the radar. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, the film was banned in the UK. There's a long scene at the beginning mm-hmm. where the doctor is talking to women, talking to the wives, the fiancés, and the subject, subject of children mm-hmm. comes up, mm-hmm. uh, and he admits that because you're dealing with paraplegics, it's really unlikely. Mm, uh, right. And that's, that's at the heart of this film. The, the fiance still wants to marry him, still wants, still loves him, but the parents are like, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of pathos in this film, but as an artifact, it's, it's worth watching because when the actors of the old school are acting together, you kind of go, oh, oh, we're in a movie from the 1950s. Okay, right. cool. And then as soon as Brando comes on the screen, something entirely different is happening. <laughs> Shockingly different. Right, uh, right It's right. worth the $3.99 uh, download online to stream yeah. it just to, watch, just to see. And it's got a bit of a, there's a bit of a Hemingway uh, vibe. It sounds like here, it, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the, the name escapes you. The sun also rises, yeah. right? It yeah. has that kind, of a, that kind of a vibe and a mood. Um, okay. Yeah, so he's he's out in Hollywood now, and we're gonna. This is where we're gonna start to get into his filmography. Uh, I want to make sure uh, I get it right. He would do um, Streetcar next, um, and Streetcar would come out in '51. And when you compare a movie like The Men to Streetcar, it's almost like is this the same medium? What are we? Right. What am I watching? Right. One is like a made-for-TV movie. The other right. is one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, and that's Elia Kazan. Uh, who, who I believe directed the play. Um, I want to make sure I get that right. Uh, Kazan, have you, you've seen Streetcar, right? I have, yeah. I mean, it's been years, but yes. And I was definitely struck by it, for sure. And I mean, yeah. th- that was also, it's interesting. So that's Brando's sort of big break. And that's also really Tennessee Williams' big break as well, right? Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, so it, it was Kazan. Yeah, I just needed to make sure. I, I didn't want to, um, I should know that, but uh, I just mm-hmm. wanted to make sure. Uh, so... <laughs> but we have the the running theme in Brando's life is the sex and the sexuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about Brando. Uh, <laughs> so this is an article. Uh, so <laughs> there, 
they're citing a book I have. Uh, it's a, it's a, a biography called The Contender, the story of Marlon Brando, uh, William J. Mann. And uh, <laughs> so everybody knows he was a playboy, but that book goes a little deeper. And Mann claims that Brando began his days with a particular thought, which pretty much summed up his attitude in life. And I'm going to say a polite version of this, but he would say, to himself, when I wake in the morning, the first thing I think about is, who am I going to screw today? Jeez. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, whoa. That's like almost yeah. like a predator mindset. He's, Not even like a sexual, but that's like, a, that's just, like what a lion thinks when it wakes up. What am I going to eat today? I, it's, yeah. it's, it, it would be diagnosable today, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then he was the top actor in Hollywood, he would become sure. the top, one of the top actors in Hollywood very right. quickly. Right. Uh, the list, uh, it says here, would surprise you. Uh, Rita Moreno, Marilyn Monroe, Richard Pryor, Quincy Jones. He was Quincy indiscriminate. Jones. And yeah. uh, g- I think genuinely a bisexual. Not LARPing. Like it. Yeah. Not in a monogamous relationship for a period yeah, of time. Well, right, and not like, uh, not like, man, it was on a drug bender and it got weird. And like, but you <laughs> right. know, like, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, right. So yeah, he just drew people to him. Uh, he apparently he had slept with uh, several men on the Shattuck campus here in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Uh, and he wasn't guilt-ridden uh, mm. at all. He was right. at ease. Yeah, um, So yeah, it's just it's a funny thing to think about Brando waking up in the morning and kind of going, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> who, who's who's uh, who's it gonna be today? Right. Uh, I want to I want to get the uh, the business about uh, Maryland. Let me make sure I have it here. Uh, because that's awfully fun. Um, he has a great quote about it. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So his uh, his affair <laughs> his affair with Monroe began after they bumped into each other literally at a party in New York after he finished filming Streetcar. Monroe and I remember this. Monroe was taking classes with Lee Strasberg. Uh, <laughs> okay. at the actor's studio where Brando often headed to meet girls. Yeah. Uh, are you getting a picture? <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is from, uh, yeah. So while the other party goers drank and laughed, Monroe quietly played the piano by herself in a corner. Mm-hmm. When she tapped Brando on the shoulder, he turned sharply and accidentally caught her in the face with his elbow. <laughs> when he apologized profusely, saying that's like a pickup an- artist thing now, probably right. <laughs> that's called pulling a Brando. Oh yeah. no, man! Oh, I hate that, that that PUA stuff drives oh, it's me the worst. nuts. Man. It's the worst. Yeah, Quite literally, it. the best advice you could give to a young man is to read some of that stuff and yeah. forget it and yeah. don't do it. Do, right. Don't right. just forget you ever read it and don't be like those guys. Yes, yes. Uh, you're going to be fine. Just yep. be honest uh, yeah. or as honest as you can be. Yeah. Um, Monroe quietly played the piano by herself in a corner. Right. Okay. Uh, he, he, right, 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 right. When he apologized profusely, she gave him, gave him a deadpan retort. There are no accidents. Stunned for a second, Brando then dissolved into laughter and told her she couldn't play the piano worth a damn. Ah, he's, he's negging. Yeah. I think, I think it came naturally to him though. I don't think he, he he didn't have to work at this at all. Right. Right. Yeah. So they, they struck up a friend's friendship. Then one night he just called her and said, I want to come over. Mm-hmm. And she, she invited him over. He, he'd woken up that morning and the, the answer was clear to the question. Yes, yeah. Right. He probably had a pinup <laughs> through a dart. 
Uh, and the quote, I quite like this from him is, she invited me over, he wrote, and it wasn't long before every soldier's dream came true. Uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you... Mean, yeah. He's not wrong, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they did have a, a relationship. Obviously, Marilyn is someone that we'll, we'll get to. Uh, they did have an ongoing sexu- sexual relationship but they did have an emotional bond. He thought that she was sensitive and misunderstood and way more perceptive than people assumed. Yeah, that's what yeah. I've heard in the sort of the, the, the ongoing revision of the Marilyn Monroe identity was that she was a lot smarter than anybody ever gave her credit for at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said she had been beaten <laughs> down and had demons, but also had a strong emotional intelligence, a keen intuition for the feelings of others the most refined type of intelligence. Mm. And they would speak on the phone for hours at a time until she, she died. Yeah. And uh, she confided in him how she felt exploited and mistreated. Yeah, uh, And she called him two or three days before she died. Wow. And uh, yeah, it, pretty, pretty tragic. He, he, he lived a life. He was definitely uh, there. So that's, yeah. that's just a little interlude for, um, for Marilyn, but now we're going to take a pit stop. Uh, that is, that that to me is just so surprising. Yeah, uh, yeah. James Dean. Yeah. What? Now he's he's had the soldier's dream with Marilyn. Yeah. And I'm reading an article here. It's it's a little listicle about five quick facts. It's from Heavy.com, but it's uh, James Dean and Marlon Brando reportedly had a secret sadomasochistic relationship. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're citing a book. I want to make sure I have the book. Uh, let me see. Right. It's called James Dean Tomorrow Never Comes. And uh, yeah, we got to do James Dean. At some <laughs> yeah, point. we'll have to do James Dean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, the two actors would partake in master and servant style se- uh, sex sessions. Wait, wait, wait. But who... It's got to be Brando Master. Brando Dean. was the master yeah, and okay. Dean was the puppy dog. Wow. Dean reportedly asked Brando to burn him with cigarettes. Yeah. Whoa, when, that when, is... <laughs> dark. <laughs> yeah. When Dean would meet up with Brando, he re- would reportedly request to be burned uh, by cigarettes. Now, this is the Daily Mail. This is, yeah. you know, so we'll take some of this with a grain of salt. Yeah. But Brando's sexuality is pretty far out. Right. Uh, apparently, Brando... Brando was the dominant one. He would make yeah. Dean watch him uh, with other people. Whoa. And uh, yeah, yeah. James. Dude, you know, I, was, I didn't know what to expect this episode. I did not expect to learn that James Dean was a cuck. I did not see that. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think the entire world was a cuck to Marlon. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good way. To I put mean, it. he yeah. was just such a, a figure. Uh, they had a, a Dean and, and Brando had a turbulent relationship. Um, they had a big public fight over other romantic interests, male romantic interests, in Santa Monica, and Brando elaborated on this. Um, Marlon had a bit of a fling with Cary Grant, spending a weekend with him in San Francisco. Oh, really? Cary was also pursuing the actor Stuart Granger, who became another of Marlon's conquests. And I think calling them conquests is fair here. This it isn't some seems frat like it, boy you know, yeah. going out and 
dating somebody for three months. Well, and the moving whole on. thing yeah. about like, well, I'll sleep with your wife. Like that's yeah. that's a power move as much as it is a sex move. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, this is really funny too because he would one of the other early films. I watched a bit of it. You can find a bit on YouTube. I didn't watch the whole thing, but he he would. This is one thing about Brando now too in the film period. Whatever that method was, whatever talent that Brando naturally had, he found the right fit in the method because he did he did Shakespeare, he did modern plays, he would eventually do Guys and Dolls, and he would oh, sing really? and dance in it. He's not a great singer, he's not a great sure. dancer, but enough to, okay. to play opposite of Sinatra and mm-hmm. hold his own and, and, and get good reviews and be very entertaining. That's a very entertaining film. Guys and Dolls is yeah. really kind of it fun is. Yeah. A, yeah you know that one yeah well you yeah. know i saw it years ago and i've seen it live once twice actually for a variety of reasons yeah and i guess i didn't realize brando was in it he I was mean, in the film yeah. version of it interesting yeah. Yeah. uh so uh marlon admired john gilgood uh who's a i think a famous english director i think um but they didn't have a relationship rather brando performed favors for him sexual favors for gilgood mm. and told friends i owed it to him because he really helped me me with the lines in julius caesar oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you've so got this sleeping his way to the top too a oh, little bit you know? uh, yeah a little bit mm. i think brando's doing the things that he has to do he's yeah. already on the top Pretty, I mean, yeah, pretty soon he's on top. He, I don't think he won, he didn't win an Oscar for Streetcar, but that's coming. Um, yeah. They're saying here that he he liked to play a cat and mouse game with Dean. Uh, you know, he <laughs> an epic womanizer. He had an addiction. Uh, Dean would um, lo- loiter outside Brando's apartment like a puppy dog, uh, is what people would say. Wow. So. And was this, yeah. what, to, to what degree did people know about this? I mean, some people <sighs> must have known, right? There's a, there's a, there's a quote from, from Brando where I don't think I, let me see if I can find the exact quote, but if not, I can paraphrase um, where he says, oh yeah, here it is. Mm. Uh, this is in the Wikipedia. Brando was known for his tumultuous personal life and his large number of partners and children. And we're going to start to get to the wives. Mm. Um, he was the father to at least 11 children. Wow. Three of whom were adopted. Yeah. And in, and this is much later. So, but in 76, he told a French journalist, homosexuality is so much in fashion. It no longer makes news like a large number of men. I too have had homosexual experiences and I'm not ashamed. I've never paid much attention to what people think about me, but if there is someone who is convinced that Jack Nicholson and I are lovers, may they continue to do so. I find it amusing. This dude just loves sex. Yeah, uh, it's his thing. Yeah, I mean, it was right. I, there's not a lot of um, uh, substance abuse, as far as I can tell here. Okay, but, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah, but in in lieu of substance abuse, we have yeah. we have sort of wild uh, uh, sex. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Pick your, po- uh, pick you your poison, I guess. Well, yeah. you, you got to have something. Um, yeah. yeah. What is what is it? Uh, no more drugs for me. Uh, Kanye. (laughs) Uh, We got both, both the other things here. Um, So yeah, I want to get into, we're going to kind of, in the interest of time, we're going to start to blast through the the filmography here. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have, uh, we have the men, we have streetcar, which is one of the greatest films ever made. He made a film, uh, Viva Zapata in 52, uh, which is a little, yeah, he plays Zapata and, uh, 
Yeah, Aaliyah Kazan directed that as well. Mm-hmm. It it was nominated. He was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, yeah. It looks like maybe yeah, right, yeah. Uh, it won a BAFTA award for Best Foreign Actor, and oh, okay. uh, it won at Cannes. So it was. I think it was pretty well received. Okay. It's a little funny because. He he definitely is a kind of in a little bit of a like a it's not a blackface situation but it's right. a little bit a little bit of a brownface situation. Yeah. It, yeah. The, well, it's funny yeah. we 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 there's a, there's a lot of emphasis now on getting a, a person of whatever ethnicity mm. would to, to play that, and sometimes it's a little too much. But you do go back to that era, and it's like, wait, Charlton Heston is playing like an Indian war chief. Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Brando, I think, would make good on on this sort of id poll uh, anxiety later, and we'll yeah. come to that. Uh, so, yeah, he, he he makes that film, uh, and then let's go. Then he makes Juli- uh, Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. which he's very good. Uh, sure. you, he's playing Mark Antony, and. Yeah. Uh, he, he, I watched a clip of it, and he's giving the famous, uh, I think it's Friends, Friends, Romans, Countrymen. It's that so that's a, that's an adaptation of the Shakespeare play, right? Yes. Or is it its own? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. I've never seen that. Yeah. yeah, and so it's a case of like, well, can this actor who's famous for his modernity, for this new modern method of acting, right, right. what can he bring uh, to to that? Yeah, can uh, he pull a Laurence Olivier? Right. Yeah. And he does. Right. Uh, Okay. So it's a a faithful adaptation of Shakespeare's play. No significant cuts. Uh, The only notable exception is the messenger's text recounting the battle of Philippi uh, where they actually show the battle. Okay. Uh, I kind of want to see. Yeah. It was really favorable reviews. Hmm, Okay. So this would be one to watch, I think. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Well, do you know, as an actor, I mean, getting, critical accolades for a Shakespeare adaptation is pretty high up there, I would think, in on terms your, of like artistic mm-hmm. merit of, yes. of your craft. On your yeah. list of, right, and of course you're, you're given uh, Gilgood uh, Hummers in, in return. <laughs> pretty, pretty good at those too, probably. Yeah, <laughs> pretty good at a lot of things. There's, there's, I can, I'm a song and dance man, I do Shakespeare. Right. Here's John Gilgood, I'm right. going to his dressing room, I'll be right back, right. come to right. my dressing room. Yeah. Right. Uh, so Marlon, really a, truly a, a renaissance man. Uh, yeah, so you have Marlon Brando as Mark Antony, James Mason as Brutus, just one of these great classic yeah, adaptation watch that actually yeah. yeah that sounds great gilgood uh played cassius and he uh, was an actor and director he's quite a quite a famous uh, figure um all right now at this point in his personal life we're in 1953 uh and brando's mother passes away and i want to get a little bit about that 1953, you said? 1953, okay. his mother passes away. Uh, let me, I just want to make sure I get this. I have a, I have a bit about his mother, or actually what happened um, with his father after his mother passed away, but I want to, Let's see if I can find a bit about her. About her. Uh, so Brando's away. not even 30 yet at this point. Uh, let me do the math. What year did we say he was born? Uh, 24. Yeah, 24, he's not even 30. Right. And he's right. doing, he, you know, he's already doing uh, Shakespeare and right. uh, yeah, just absolutely incredible. 
Um, let me make sure I get this because I want to have it. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I have this. Um, I have a, I have something about what happened with his father after his mother died. So okay, um, he's talking about a few years later. Yeah. So a few years after my mother died in 1953, my father remarried, and at 70, he had an affair with one of my secretaries. He changed little as he grew older, always handsome, always a miser, always a charmer, always a philanderer. He never lost the shyness that people, especially women, liked about him. It was something he came by naturally. Though he was very masculine, he also had a gentleness, humility, and quietness that people liked, along with a very genuine sense of humor. He was unsuited to do anything in the movie business, but I had given him a salary, a desk, an office, a secretary, and an opportunity to look busy and feel useful. So Marlon <laughs> hated his father, but he also kept him close, uh, yeah. which I think I, I respect. Yeah. Um, then one day, without telling me about it, he fired one of my friends. When I heard about it, I went to his office and told him that my friend was not going to be fired. And from somewhere inside me, a tidal wave rose, crested, flooded, and I reduced him to a heap of shambling, stuttering, fast blinking confusion. I said he should consider himself fortunate to have a job since anybody else with his qualifications would be in a poorhouse. I went over the history of our family and told him that he had ruined my mother's life and had used every opportunity to belittle me and make, we, make me feel inadequate. I told, uh, let me see here. I took him apart with pliers, bit by bit, hunk by hunk, and distributed his psyche all over the floor. I was cold, correct, and logical. No screaming or yelling, just stone frozen cold. And when he tried to make excuses, I slammed down an iron gate and reminded him what a shambles he had made of our lives. I told him that he was directly responsible for making my sisters alcoholics and that he was cold, unloving, selfish, infantile, terminally despicable, and self-absorbed. I made him feel useless, helpless, hopeless, and weak. I assaulted him for almost three hours <laughs> when he tried to end the conversation, <laughs> like a play. Right, yeah. yeah. And when he tried to end the conversation, I said, sit down if you expect to be paid any money from this day forward. Whoa. You will listen to what your employer is telling you. I am your employer and you are something of an employee. At least you bear that name and you will do what I tell you. In three hours, I did what in 33 years I had never been able to do. Yet the whole time I was scared. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. That's intense. <laughs> that is intense. Oh, well, and you can see it. I mean, you can, the, the sort of building up to that point makes sense, right? I mean, Brando is at this, he's at this godlike moment, yeah. right? Up right. to that po powerful and attractive and making money and critical success and the top of his art form. And, you know, this mewling guy who had abused him is, 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 you know, Oh yeah, that's intense. That I could see somebody making that into an incredible little one act play, you know, just unreal. Yeah. And uh, there's not a whole lot about his about his mother's death. Uh, the <clears throat> going on about about his about his father here. Uh, a few days later, I got a call from a psychiatrist who said that my father was seeing him and then he needed my cooperation wow. because his patient was in a serious depression and on the edge of a precipice. 
Well, doctor, I said, I appreciate your calling. When my father has gone over the edge of that depression and smashed himself on the rocks below, when he's hit bottom, please call me and I'll see if I can arrange something. Wow. After that, I always kept my father on a tight leash so that he could never come near me and never get too far away. I had him under control and never let him go. Whoa. <laughs> Dang. Dark. Right. Dark. Well, man, and there's something to, I mean, there's, there's something about the BDSM thing that he had with James Dean in there too, right? Like yeah. it's all of a piece. There's something about, you know, being weak and then becoming powerful. Like that's mm. intense. Mm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to pause briefly um, to talk about his feelings uh, about the theater. Okay, yeah. And why he didn't return to the theater. Uh, in the interviews, he talks about this as well. And they're, they're worth, um, again, these, these video uh, interviews with him are, are pretty, um, pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, so here's what he said. He's talking about making Streetcar. Streetcar, after he made Streetcar, he made the decision he was not going to go back to the, to the theater. Uh, okay, okay. Making the movie reinforced my decision not to take on another Broadway play. I've heard it said that I sold out to Hollywood. In a way, it's true, but I knew exactly what I was doing. I've never had any respect for Hollywood. It stands for avarice, phoniness, greed, crassness, and bad taste. But when you act in a movie, you only have to work three months a year, then you can do as you please for the rest. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's uh, a good enough reason. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. I mean, and for him too, I think, again, Streetcar kind of broke his brain. Yeah. Uh, Make, you know, making doing the play, and then yeah. he's right in a funny way. I love the theater, of course, and yeah. uh, things things have have changed from that time. But if you had a hit play, you would do it for. There were actors who, famously, the woman who uh, who delivers the line a handbag in yeah. uh, in uh, earnest. I think did the play for thirty years. That's insane. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I could see. Yes, you bring joy to a great many people. You make a fortune. Right. Uh, but my goodness, I mean, there's about. a, well, there's a monotony to, there's gotta be a monotony to that. I it, absolutely it has to be right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can understand in certain parts you could maybe find new intricacies to it. Right. And it could be the part itself could be that captivating where it's like you could work on it and develop it for years, but eventually it's just like the lines are the same every night. <laughs> I would, I would go nuts if I had yeah, to do the same too much. for a year. Yeah. I would yeah. absolutely go crazy. Yeah. By the time I, I stage one of my plays, it's almost like I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. Is for sure. Sort of people are maybe not don't understand that. And uh, obviously I want to stage many, many, many of my plays and uh, please, please produce my plays. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, writing, <laughs> writing is the same, man. Like once I finish yeah. up, I don't really, I don't, want to reread yeah. any of it it's yeah. done i kind of feel for musicians too it's like bob dylan going around and playing oh, uh, yeah. like a rolling stone it's at a you just gotta go gosh can i just right. yeah well yeah. so getting back to the filmography uh he's just done julius caesar now he does the wild one do you know the wild I one Brad? Do, uh i don't can't say i've seen it i'm, I'm familiar with it though i know of it yeah it's, yeah it's a very cool movie the wild yeah. one is a is a movie that is a mood and it has mm -hmm. enough of a, an artistic bent. The director, uh, Laszlo Benedek, uh, is enough like Dutch angles and interesting yeah. shots to sort of keep your attention. You can kind of see how it 
would have influenced Tarantino, how okay. it might have influenced uh, David Lynch. They're just these interesting things. And it's all just about uh, the Black Rebels motorcycle gang. Right. Uh, and, and Brando plays uh, Johnny Strabler. And they go into, <laughs> you know, or Strabler. Yeah. They go into Carbonville, California during a motorcycle race and they cause trouble. Right. And right. one of the guys steals the second place trophy. And then the policemen order them to leave. Then they head yeah. to Wrightsville and there's only one elderly lawman. <laughs> you know, so it's, <laughs> it's just this like, and they're in the cafe and they're yeah. rival biker gangs and, and yeah, there used uh, to be a little bit of like a fear of biker gangs. I feel ooh, like big then, time, right? No, right? You know, and, when and the Hell's Angels mm -hmm. came out and all that. Oh yeah, yeah. and we're gonna yeah. get into that too. That okay. uh, that um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. When we do Hunter, yeah, yeah, uh, right. The Hell, you know, Hell's Angels. That book made Hunter Thompson. Uh, yeah, and this was definitely lurking in the background, right? And here's the thing: this movie looks so darn cool. It looks mm -hmm. just cool, right? Like they're all, like if you if you showed up dressed like Brando dresses in this movie, yeah. you'd fit right in. Like it's a style and right. it holds right. up. Right. And uh, he's got these, these incredible leather jackets and he's just exuding uh, sexuality like he does. Yeah. Uh, there's a great line from this film. Um, something like, you know, what are you, what are you rebelling against, against Johnny? And yeah. he says, what do you got? <laughs> Right, right. That's <laughs> uh, pretty based. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's apparently a story saying that the Beatles took their name from the rival motorcycle club. Uh, oh, really? Referred to as Beatles. So who knows? Okay. Yeah, yeah. so pretty cool. Yeah, right, exactly. In yeah. Twin Peaks, uh, Michael Sarah plays Wally Brando, who dresses like Johnny Strab. Strabbler and does a Brando impression. So nice. yeah, definitely, definitely influenced Lynch. I didn't just yeah. pull that out of the air. Yeah. Uh, so cool. So we, you know, we got the wild one under our belts and uh, now we're coming up to one of the big ones, one of the ones that, that everybody knows on the waterfront. When's the last mm -hmm. time you watched on the waterfront, Brad? It's been years, but I was, it's captivating. It's a, it's a, you know, we were talking about five to 10% or less of movies yeah. from the fifties or whatever really hold up. And that is definitely one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And this is a film that he made with, uh, with Kazan and uh, just such a good movie. I saw a screening of this uh, at the United Palace in New York city and which is this great old cinema and they screen movies. And one of the young actors, the young actor who played the pigeon keeper with him, helped him keep, oh, keep okay. his pigeons, was there I as an old man talking nice. about what it was like to work with Brando. Yeah, so cool. Everybody loves that. Yeah. Uh, I neglected to mention, too, a little anecdote from the theater days. Back when you and I were at UT, the Harry Ransom Center has mm -hmm. quite a lot of Tennessee William uh, errata, yeah. uh, miscellany. And one of the objects that was under glass there was a little black book mm -hmm. which had been poached by the stage manager uh, from Brando. Brando had lost it or left it in his dressing room or maybe the stage manager grabbed it one night yeah. um, because apparently the stage manager, I think maybe had a little bit of a grudge against Marlon sure. and the little black book was just phone numbers. Right, right. For, <laughs> for partners. <laughs> he, probably, he probably slept with that stage manager's wife. <laughs> or, or, or her, her husband. husband. Yeah, yeah or, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. And look, if you don't know On the Waterfront, it's, it's a must watch. It's, oh, it's great. This is also another famous, like, sort of iconic 
you know, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I could yeah. have been, you should have taken care of me. Yeah. You were my brother. You should have looked after me instead of, you know, going after the short money or whatever it was. Yeah. It's just yeah. such a great, that scene, I got, I got choked up a little bit the last time yeah. I watched that. It it's just, also a great, like, and then a lot of movies deal with class, but it's a, it's a great film for just dealing with American class situation, you know? Yeah. And it's a, it's a mob movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. which of course we're going to come back to big yeah. time. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, it, it won best picture, best actor yeah. for Brando. Now we're, now we're on top of the world. I've won best actor. I have the Oscar. Um, yeah. I'm in my early thirties. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, nothing can stop me now. So, um, let's, uh, keep, keep on moving on. Cause we got to get to sort of the, the midpoint here, the, of, of late, get toward late Brando. He did. Um, so the year after that, he did guys and dolls with Sinatra. We're so the year about- after mm-hmm. the year after on the waterfront, he did guys. And dolls. He does a song and dance thing and That's he, and really he dances and he does his own, he sings. So yeah. we've got a guy who has defined a new method of acting, uh, for the, for the, for film, mm-hmm. uh, by way of Stella Adler, by way of her toolage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time, see, I think what's happened is by the time on the waterfront is made, everyone's picking up on what's going on in terms of that acting style. And so yeah. it's much less uneven as, uh, you know, f- compared to something like the men uh, where everyone's bringing a similar kind of a vibe. I mean, not quite, I mean, nobody's quite Brando. That's right. the point. Right. But right. there's that, that great scene in um, waterfront where uh, someone pointed this out to me at one point where he, he's walking with the, the love interest and they're walking through a little park in Manhattan and she drops her glove and there's that moment where he grabs the glove and puts it on. And that's the take that makes it into the movie. <laughs> right. And it's just this little moment. And any other actor of the old school would never, that never would have happened. No. No, no way. Yeah. Cut. Right, right. What right? are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Kazan knows just let it, let it roll. Let's see what, what, is, what is Marlon going to do. Um, well, so we're getting to his first marriage. Now, he would have three wives, uh, and I want to talk about the first one. His first wife was uh, asking him to allow ads. Uh, let's oh. see here. I'm just, no, I'm just grabbing. <laughs> grabbing a, so her name was Anna Kashfi, and they had a bit of a violent relationship. Uh, apparently, and there's a book called Brando's Bride. She was a star herself. Um, She's like a Russian. What was she? Uh, let me let me find out what her background is. I want to get it right because it's important. Now, I but I think I think his <laughs> I think his relationship. She was a British Indian um, oh, okay. film actress. She yeah. had a, a brief Hollywood career. Okay. Uh, so. This, this uh, marriage did not last long. I think it lasted all of 11 months. And the, the story is that, yeah, they divorced a year and a half later. Um, but they would have a son who's going to come into play later named Christian um, Devi Brando. And Christian will figure heavily toward the end of, the, of this episode. Um, yeah, the, the claim is that Brando would bring his lovers home. Like, Brando was not playing by the rules. Right. Um, well, so, while, they, while they were married, he would just bring somebody home. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
uh, I, I can't even imagine being married to him. Um, yeah. the, the quote here from the article I'm reading is, I think they married because she was pregnant. At that point, it was still very scandalous for a woman to have a child without being married. And, and it would have been scandalous for him too, not being married to the mother of his child. He told friends that he didn't think the marriage would last, but he really wanted a baby. So he would give it a go. Mm. Not a good way to go no. about things. No. I just do not think uh, it's a, just it's just not a great way to to go about things. Um, there's a custody battle. It lasted nearly 15 years. Jeez. Court appearances. At one of them, she slapped Brando across the face. Wow. Um, and they would accuse each other of of domestic violence. Mm. And uh, so. Uh, she wanted to save the marriage. She's raising a baby. Um, you know, she just couldn't cope with all the other women. And right. I mean, and she's, she's uh, beautiful. I mean, looking oh, at pictures okay. here and little Christian too, just a beautiful boy. But yeah. Brando just was, was not, um, not cut out for, no. <laughs> for no. the, uh, I guess that, that uh, picket fence kind of a situation. Yeah. 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 Well, so, Getting back into the cinema, um, have you ever seen the film One-Eyed Jacks? Uh, I have Brad? not seen One-Eyed oh, Jacks. No. One-Eyed Jacks is just a straight-ahead, uh, straight uh, good Western. Okay. He actually took over from Stanley Kubrick. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And he, but he, he directed it. Oh, uh, so right. Brando directed it himself. And it's, right. a, you know, it's a Technicolor Western film, 1961. Yeah. Only film he directed. Uh, it was going to be directed by Kubrick. Um, Sam Peckinpah wrote the screenplay. Okay, but there were there were studio disputes, and um, you know it, uh, it. It's a solid kind of a you know it's an okay western. It's okay. not the it's not the the greatest uh, film it's you're not, ever going to watch, but it's right. not again. It's another like you just put it on. It's kind of a mood. Okay, yeah. you know, yeah. Okay. He would make another western later with uh, Jack Jack Nicholas, and that's a dog. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll get to it. But I mean, and again, here you have that David Lynch uh, reference. You know, One Eye Jacks is the name of a brothel in the TV series Twin Peaks. Yeah, uh, and it's even mentioned. So okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. All right. So One Eye Jacks, and then uh, here's a really pivotal film. Uh, and it's also where there is a period of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine films. Mm-hmm. After this next one, um, with 10 films after this next one, with one exception, didn't even get a single nomination for anything. Wow. <laughs> so wow. he just went on a tear of, of stinkers after this, uh, after total critical acclaim. Yeah. Um, and the film uh, is called Mutiny on the Bounty. Have okay. you... Have you seen Mutiny on the Bounty? I haven't seen it. I feel like I may have had to read the book in school. Like yeah, it's based on a book yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. And it's a historical event. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. It's based on a, an historical event. Uh, it is a film that when you when you it's sixty two Technicolor epic historical drama MGM right, yeah. and it it's going to be this big epic based on this real life mutiny a prestige mm-hmm. movie, um, but it ended up being a box office bomb and mm-hmm. lost more than $6 million. Whoa. And yep. a big Whoops. part of that yeah. uh, was Brando. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, okay. Yeah. 
apparently um he filming was difficult in part because the script was being rewritten and brando was reportedly ad-libbing much of his part <laughs> so now we're going to get into this phase of well i'm marlon brando right right and right yes this is an historical epic but i've done shakespeare right, right. and i studied with stella adler do you know who you're talking to i have an oscar right, right? Right. I mean, they made a working replica of the ship for $750,000. They sailed it to Tahiti. Wow. Right? And this is yeah. where Brando would, would have his Tahiti connection. Yeah. His, his second wife, I, I believe, was, was Tahiti, or maybe third, was Tahitian. We'll get to okay. it. Okay. Um, okay. No, I think it would probably be around here. Right. Um, uh, and they would have a child together who we'll get to, Cheyenne Brando. We'll get to mm-hmm. her near the end. Um, so they had all kinds of delays. Uh, 150 cast and crew arrived in Tahiti. So you have to imagine. And this, yeah. I will say for this film, it's, this is another one. It's worth watching. It's fun. I mean, they had 200 hotel rooms. So just imagine the scope of what they're trying to make here. Oh, right. Yeah. And now, yeah. Brand, but now Brando uh, is ad-libbing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And now, oh. so, but Brando loved it. And he said this, Reality surpassed even my fantasies about, about Tahiti, and I had some of the best times of my life making Mutiny on the Bounty. Every hmm. day, as soon as the director said, cut for the last time. See, and this is probably important, too. He didn't have his eye on the prize here. Right. Brando uh, said, I ripped off my British naval u- officer's uniform and dove off the ship into the bay to swim with the Tahitian extras working on the movie. Mm-hmm. Often we only did two or three shots a day, which left me hours to enjoy their company, and I grew to love them for their love of life. Mm-hmm. So Brando has this fantasy a little bit of going native here, um, right. to the point where he, he would marry a Tahitian. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was... And it, it, it was it was panned. Uh, mm. So to the point where the Saturday Evening Post ran an article. Uh, apparently, a Tahitian died during making the film, too. Like, like died during, like, a, a canoe rowing scene. Oh, boy. Um, so it was a bit of a, cur- a cursed production. Yeah. Um, the Saturday Evening Post ran an article about Brando, which Brando felt dispar- disparaged him. The... What they really rejected, he sued them for five million dollars um, <laughs> for a bad for a bad review. Yeah, yeah. well, wow. not a review, not a review, okay. but it, they were disparaging his behavior on this. Oh, I see. And, okay, okay. Yeah, and this is worth noting uh, that they sort of like really attacked Brando. Um, there was an immense backlash. He, again, his notorious behavior during production. Got bad press for the behavior. They didn't like his um, uh, his performance either. It's a little, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but one of the reviews talks about how, right here. Um, let's see. One reason for this is that they've received no help from Marlon Brando, who plays Fletcher Christian as a sort of seagoing Hamlet. Since what Fletcher Christian has to say is so much less interesting than what Hamlet has to say, Mr. Brando's tortured scowling seemed thoroughly out of place. Indeed, we tend to sympathize with the wicked Captain Bly, well played by Trevor <laughs> Howard. That's a bad review when they say we yeah, like the villain. Right. No wonder he behaved badly with that highborn young fop provoking him at every turn. <laughs> oh, a highborn young fop. That's mm, a good, that's a nice, that's a yeah. classy insult. I mean, you um, know, the UK press criticized him 
him for an outrageously phony upper class English accent. It just didn't, I mean, it did not get good reviews and um, it had a bad performance at the box office and this destroyed his film acting career and star power. Wow. Um, it's interesting that one movie can do, I, I don't feel like now one movie can do that to you. I just don't, I just don't know. I, it's, it, it was the fifth highest grossing film of the year yeah. Uh, it made $13.5 million, but it needed to make $30 million right. to recoup its budget, and it flopped. And we're talking about millions of dollars here in oh, the yeah, 60s. I mean, $30 million then. In the 60s, it's roughly eight times. you got to multiply by roughly eight to get the modern-day dollars. So you're talking <sighs> $250 million film. Yeah. Yeah, and you're not going to get uh, your money back from the China market at that point. Right. You're not going to get your money back from Netflix and rentals. distribution. Yeah, and rentals, right, right exactly. Yeah. But it's really, really important because um, he would fall in love with Tahiti, and a few years later, he would buy a lease on the, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Teddy Arau Atoll. Okay. He then married Tarita Teriapai, uh, and I apologize if I, I get that wrong, um, in 1962, and they would have two children, Tahadu Brando, uh, Brando and Cheyenne Brando. Um, they would be married for for six years, and we'll oh. talk about, yeah, I made it that long, and we'll yeah. talk about Cheyenne. He really, it's clear to me, he had a bit of a, I don't want to say problematic God, but he had a, he had a bit of a relationship with, with Tahiti where, it's it's pretty clear that he appreciated what he perceived to be the lack, not the lack of guile, but the cultural differences between the viper's nests that he had to maneuver in mm -hmm. and the relative peace and yeah. social calm, I think, and the difference between sure. uh, Tahiti and, let's say, an agent's office in New York City. Yeah, or, yeah, I could. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I could see, and I don't know anything about Tahiti, and I know even less about Tahiti in the '60s. But I could also imagine, like, nobody really knows who he is there. There's no, he doesn't have a public persona as much. I mean, he, they would know he's like a rich, successful guy, but correct. Yeah, yeah, and he he would talk. He talks about that in one of the interviews, uh, mm -hmm. where he 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 says they don't they don't care. Right. Uh, who I am. Yeah. And if I bring some sort of like ego, it's just not going to play. They, they, he says they'll tease you mercilessly. Good. <laughs> if you have errors or whatnot. Good. Um, which I think is sort of, is sort of wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, well, so we've already, um, we already talked about how Brando put his father on a, on a leash. Um, it was around this time that his father would, would finally, uh, pass away. Um, and so I want to sort of talk about, <sighs> I think that the tragedy, the tragedy of Marlon Brando is that all of those things that he talked about with his own father, yeah. um, would, he would not overcome them oh, in really? his own, in his own life, in his own, and in his own family with his own children. Wow, I don't okay. think I don't think he did. Um, I, not, people say he was very sweet. He loved children. Mm -hmm. um, he loved being around children, but he he had m many of them, and he was simply not there for right. 
some of them. Right. Uh, and so and I'm not, I'm not casting judgment, uh, yeah. but no, it's, well, yeah. nobody's there for 11 kids. Well, you know what I mean? Like right. Logistically. Right. Sure. Um, I mean, and we're talking about also, different households. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, it's, it's a case of, um, it, one wonders if he, uh, if he was sort of compensating by not being there mm. as a father in a way for his own kind of horror at his own father's. Right. There's a, uh, all I can do is damage kind of right. thing. Right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. spec, that's speculation, but I think sure. that that might be, um, you know, fair to say. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, and he's still having affairs and all the rest. Um, uh, and, uh, he had a long-term relationship with the how his housekeeper <laughs> had three children, um, adopted. They, some other they call that a Schwarzenegger, by the way. That's, <laughs> that's what that's called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were rumors about him and, uh, Wally Cox. Brando told a journalist, if Wally had been a woman, I would have married him and we would have lived happily ever after. <laughs> but Cox, that's a, that's a bromance. That's pretty epic. Yeah. yeah. Two of Cox's yeah. wives dismissed the suggestion that the love was more than, more than uh, yeah. platonic. Um, so Brando's father dies. Uh, in the book, he talks about um, how important it was for him to finally sort of forgive his father um, in his heart. But we're, we're heading into a really bad period here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> I want to read a little bit about it uh, because the comeback is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, saying here, distracted by his personal life and becoming disillusioned with his career, Brando began to view acting as a means to a financial end. And, <laughs> and he would say this in the interviews, you know, they would ask, well, why are you acting? He's like, that oh, was the most expedient way to make money. <laughs> It's like, you know, just, just, a way to make money. Right. Like, okay. Obviously. You know, critics protested when he started accepting roles in films many perceived as being beneath his talent or criticized him for having uh, failed to live up to better roles. Mm. So now we're, I'm just going to read. He signed a five-picture deal um, with Universal <laughs> that would haunt him for the rest of the decade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, the Ugly American, Bedtime Story, The Appaloosa, The Countess from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. The Night of the Following Day, Critical and Commercial Flops. Countess was a disappointment. Uh, he wanted to work with Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin um, but he was horrified mm-hmm. by Chaplin's didactic style of direction and authoritarian approach. It's probably just two mega alphas coming together, right, just right. completely unable to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The vibe. Um, He acknowledged it too. Uh, Some of the films I made during the 60s were successful. Some weren't. Uh, Some I made only from money. Candy I did because a friend asked me to and I didn't want to turn him down. In some ways, I think of my middle age as the screw you years. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the word he used. Right, Uh, agreed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Pretty funny. Um, So just a dark moody Mm -hmm. unhappy period uh only to be broken by uh a little movie called the godfather (laughs) 
No, wait, wait, what's it called? <laughs> yeah, it's called The Godfather. When, when is the last time you saw The Godfather? You know, it wasn't that long ago. It was a couple, a couple of years ago, probably. Two or three okay. years ago. Yeah. That, that, for me, is a perennial film. I'll watch, yeah. I'll watch yeah. that in the second one pretty much every year. Yeah. Uh, I think it kind of speaks for itself. If you haven't seen The Godfather, go and, yeah. go and watch The Godfather. It's uh, an incredible performance. Uh, there's some in, a good interview with, with Coppola uh, where he talks about how he rehearsed with Brando. Mm -hmm. uh, he would not do lines with Brando. He mm -hmm. says that Brando would just uh, show up and kind of, he'd hand him an apple and Brando would kind of be Corleone, be, you know, Vito or whatever, right. or whatnot, you know, and yeah. eat the apple and they would work that way to develop yeah. the character. Yeah. That's how they did it. Yeah. Um, Paramount uh, didn't, didn't want Brando. Mm. And the insistence was that, uh, understandably so. Yeah, you know, right. Based on the, yeah, absolutely. He's not a draw. That yeah. the the quote is uh, the that. Well, three things they said. He's got to do the film for free. He's got to do a screen test, mm. which Brando. I mean, you're not going to ask Brando to do a no. screen test. No. And they even they even insisted that Brando put up a million dollar bond, Whoa. <laughs> on the movie. Uh, so that he wouldn't disrupt the production and, and all. It's a big yeah. production. When you think right. about the guy, it's a big production. Just the yeah. wedding alone, that sequence. Yeah. You're, you're talking about millions of dollars ended up yeah. ending up on celluloid. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they literally thought that having him would be worse than having an unknown in that part. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but so it was it was Coppola who was like fighting fighting for it. Coppola was fighting for him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What so what year wait, what year has got? got uh father? it was released in 72. Oh, okay. That was earlier than I thought. Okay. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that, that's often the case uh with films that are iconic and and define an era because mm -hmm. everything following it yeah, yeah. references it. So yeah. yeah. Um yeah, so there was also a really there's also a really funny story uh, from the set that Robert Duvall tells. You can find this on on YouTube. But very famously, they to have fun on set, they would all moon each other, and there was like a they had like a like a wrestling belt uh, for who who could moon the best, right? <laughs> uh, so. What the defines the best mood? Yeah, mood. I don't know. I, is yeah. it timing? Is yeah, it, I don't yeah. know. I don't yeah, know. the lead actors like to play pranks. It's probably timing. Yeah. Yeah. Brando, Duvall, and James Caan like to pull down their pants and moon each other on set. Brando once mooned almost 500 extra, extras. <laughs> During the wedding scene, we were all mooning each other, Duvall said. Um, some woman turned to me and said, Mr. Duvall, you're fine. Um, but the story, the story that he tells is one of the women was like, did you see the balls on Brando? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that could, that could explain a lot yeah. about, yeah. about Marlon's, uh, yeah. libido, right. but right. just right. such, yeah, such a great movie, such an iconic performance. He's not even really in that much of the movie. No, it's very, yeah, it's very brief. Yeah. Um, but, but the most, some of the most memorable parts of it. Right? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean he completely, yeah. he completely dominates that. The look, the that voice, everything. And, and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so this would, this would naturally put him back on the map uh, completely. And this is where he refused to accept the Academy Award for best actor. 
Ooh, uh, okay. And yeah. I want to go back a little bit, a few years back to 1965. And he says, in the spring of 1965, I visited the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona and met an old medicine woman. She was charming with intelligent dark eyes and I asked her if she could tell anything about me simply by looking at me. Through an inter interpreter, she said, yes, she could. And she dipped her hand into a box of flowers beside her and sprinkled yellow corn flowers over my head and shoulders, letting them fall around me. She said alcohol had played a very important part in my life and that I was about to be struck by lightning. As she said it, I felt a strange sensation streak through my nervous system. Both your parents are dead, she went on. No, I said, one of them is dead, my mother, but not my father. Within minutes, I was informed that there was a telephone call for me at the tribal office. It was one of my sisters calling to tell me my father had just died. Whoa. We both laughed and I said, and not a moment too soon. Brando, <laughs> Wow. so Brando had developed, so this is something that I maybe um, skipped over a little bit. I want to make sure I, I cover it. Um, Brando, uh, there's, a, there's a Johnny Carson um, interview with Brando. I believe the year after or during the year that MLK was assassinated in 68. Oh, wow. okay. And yeah. Brando, one thing about Brando, if you watch these, um, particularly the Cabot interview and the, this, this Carson interview, the Tonight Show, um, or the, whatever it was at the time, um, he doesn't want to talk about movies. Mm. Almost to the point of being a little obnoxious about it. Because, of course, right. that's what everybody wants to hear about. They yeah. want to hear about the movies. How, you know, what, what movie are you going to do next, etc. Yeah. He wants to talk about Martin Luther King. Wow. Okay. And the Carson interview is quite ominous. Mm. Uh, he's saying, we have one last chance to get this right, or else it's going to be helter-skelter America. Wow. Uh, and these are very serious interviews. And he, his social consciousness was really there. He was not LARPing. Right. Um, he, he got a bunch of actors together, a bunch of um, celebrities together, people in the industry, uh, mm. and got them to commit to contributing 1% of their income to... Wow. Uh, I think the, so they didn't they didn't just like record a video and put it on TikTok. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah, they, they didn't sing just like do imagine a dance or something. Number. Yeah, yeah, right. No, yeah. no. And he okay. donated 10% of his income that year. Wow. I think to the Southern Poverty Law Center, I think. Sure. Wow. Um <clears throat> or something like that. So he really put it on the line and yeah. and it's it's worth noting how much vitriol uh you you could collect at that time. Well, that wasn't to do that then you know, through um, rose-colored glasses, we think that's how everything was then, right? But like mm -hmm. this resurgence, this this emergence of this like, consciousness. But like when you did that, you weren't saying the same thing that Amazon was saying or that Walmart <laughs> was saying or McDonald's right. was saying. Yeah, you there was were, no you, woke capital at that point. Right. You were cro you were crossing the line. You were you were you were ruffling some feathers, um, and you know. You ruffle some feathers now, but it's, you know, it's already the demographic you're not catering to anyway, so it doesn't matter. Kind of thing. Yeah. Well, so he's won uh, Best Actor for mm -hmm. uh, The Godfather. He declines it, and in his stead, he sends a woman named uh, Sasheen Littlefeather. Whoa. And we're going to listen to that 
interview or not that interview, rather that speech that she gave at the Oscars right now. Okay. I learned a great deal from a director named Ingmar Bergman. Often to be most eloquent is to be silent. You're quite right. Uh, the film we've just seen has said it all. I think we should uh, say that those nominated for the best performance by an actor are... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Michael Caine in Sleuth. Laurence Olivier in Sleuth. Peter O'Toole in The Ruling Class. Paul Winfield in Sounder. The winner is... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Shasheen Littlefeather. Hello, my name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening, and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Pretty heavy, huh? Yeah, whoa. Whoa, doggy. Yeah, yeah. That's you could feel the tension in the audience just from the moment they called their name. The 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 for people who are able to watch it, one thing that doesn't come across in the audio is when they try to hand her the award, she puts up she puts up this hand, right? And it's like, uh oh. <laughs> he told Brando that she wouldn't touch it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And yeah, her whole, her, her poise, you know, there was a little bit of nerves there, but there was the emotion brimming and yeah, that was, that was intense. It, it gives huh. me, it gives me chills a little bit and yeah. Uh, yeah. you do feel like it's a different era from now where that is tends to be lip service now. Yeah. It, it feels, it feels like a, um, PR strategy. It does. It does. It yeah. feels, and, and not that yeah. it always is, but it definitely feels that way. Yeah. And interesting to say recent events at Wounded Knee. I mean, Wounded Knee happened. I just looked it up because I was curious about the year. I know it was kind of pretty late. Wounded Knee was in 1890. Um, but this happened, this was basically 50 years ago. Um, and it was 80 years, you know, it was much closer in time. So it's interesting you think about the the change of consciousness about those sorts of things. Yeah, it was, it had to do with the, 
American Indian movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was, uh, an ongoing situation at wounded knee. Oh, there was still, okay. So there was like a contemporary. Okay. Right. Right. And what happened at wounded knee in 1973? Uh, it it was apparently under siege by us military forces. Uh, Yeah. Two, I'm not going to go too deep into this. I just didn't know about this. Uh, 200 Agalala Lakota activists and members of the American Indian movement seized control of a tiny town. Yeah. Um, and in the ensuing conflict, two native activists lost their lives and a federal agent was shot and paralyzed. Yeah. And that was in 73 when this award right. would have been given. So, yeah. Right. So quite an intense moment. And yeah. uh, Brando, I, he really, I think he really believed this. And, yeah, and uh, would, I mean, you would have to. I mean, I realize it's yeah. the end of his FU years, but also at the same time. You know. <laughs> well, and, I mean, and now too, like, think about it, though. Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? What do you got? And going back to his childhood and all of it. So, um, well, and there's also a a, a little bit of a parallel to the three hour tirade against his father, where it's like, (laughs) I'm in a position, it's in a position now where like, you guys can't, I'm going to represent this to you and send this woman up here and she's going to say stuff. And every word she says is going to be true. And you can't say there's nothing you, there's no retort. Right. Really. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, uh, it's also wild too that getting back into the filmography, another film was released that year called Last Tango in Paris, seventy two. Same year. Have you seen this? I have not. No, I saw you tweet about it, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've heard that name, and I've heard that it was good, but I've never seen it. We're gonna take a little de- detour into this because it's so little known. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least among people I've spoken to, people have yeah. you've heard the name of it, but maybe right. you haven't seen it. Yeah. It begins with a couple of Francis Bacon stills, like uh, still oh, paintings. Yeah. And when I saw those, I, I knew, oh, this is going to be, in- what is this? It's going to be interesting. Right. And it, it got an X rating. Uh, oh, whoa. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It cost, I think, $1.5 million to make, and it grossed, close to a hundred million dollars with 36 million dollars in 1973 then how do we not talk about it well because it's about sex and we were talking about america and sex earlier weren't we so it's directed by a fellow named bernardo bertolucci um and the plot is about a character who uh brando plays whose wife has killed herself Mm -hmm. and he is in paris uh just living as hedonistically as possible. Okay. And uh, Bertolucci developed the film from his sexual fantasies. Uh, there is very famously uh, an anal rape scene. Oof. By Brando's character? Brando's character. Ooh. Now, this this was... How... Sorry, I'm sorry. How corpulent was Brando at this time? This is still fit Brando. Okay. We're still, okay. We're still a little fitter, fittish. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah not, I, I, well, I mean, he's an older man, so he's not yeah. going to look like he did in Streetcar. But he's I was not just super handsome, Brando. It's Brando yeah. from the period of The Godfather. Right. That's what um, I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Bertolucci. <laughs> I mean, this this film was so controversial and so um, exciting to people that uh, tickets were going for like a hundred dollars a ticket. <laughs> Uh, people were queuing for two hours in France to see it where it was screened in seven theaters. People were driving from Spain uh, to go see the movie. And 
I mean, it just it just had all of this this controversy. Huh. Uh, it was released in Italy and it grossed one hundred thousand dollars in six days. But then huh. police seized all the copies, uh, calling it self serving pornography, and the director was put on trial for obscenity. Wow. Um, he lost his civil rights for five years. He, he couldn't the vote director? for five years because of this movie. Wow. Yeah, he, he got a four-month suspended sentence for this film. It's a very good film. It's hypnotic. Yeah. And, yeah. and, of course, it seems relatively tame now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the scandalous thing f- from the film that still kind of shakes me is the rape scene where mm-hmm. Schneider, the actress, um, obviously the rape is simulated. Yeah. But in a 2006 interview, she said that the scene was not in the script and that when they told her she had a burst of anger, she threw everything. Nobody can force somebody to do something not in the script, but she didn't know that I was too young. There's mixed stories here. Apparently she, apparently it was in the script and she knew, but the controversy is around the fact that they actually like kind of like, like slathered her in butter. Oh, um, and they surprised her with the butter as like lubricant. I mean, it's oh, this is definitely well into Me Too territory. Yeah, here. Like, yeah. legitimately, like right. what you can't do this. Yeah. So she's she's saying here, they only told me about it before we had to film the scene, and I was so angry. I should have called my agent or had my lawyer come to the set because you can't force someone to do something that isn't in the script. But at the time, I didn't know that. Marlon said to me, Maria, don't worry, it's just a movie. But during the scene, even though what Marlon doing, was doing wasn't real, I was crying real tears. I felt humiliated. Oh. And to be honest, I felt a little raped, both by Marlon and Bertolucci. After the scene, Marlon didn't console me or apologize. Mm. Thankfully, there was just one take. Jeez. Um, God. Oof. Yeah, pretty rough. Uh, good film, though. Yeah. Uh, I you know I hate to say it, but it's it yeah. is a really uh, strong um, artistic film. So yeah. mixed bag, uh, maybe uh, you know take it or leave it. But it's it is a striking film. It grossed a ton of money, and it's an art film. It's pretty right. wild. And and that the an fact art that film makes that much money. Yeah, yeah, that an art film made that much money, but also yeah. that he had. <laughs> The Godfather come out, and then the same year this movie comes out. Yeah. So, Brando's back, baby. Brando is back big yeah. time. It's yeah. the '70s, and he's yeah. the Godfather. And and uh, yeah, you know his agent kicked up his he kicked oh. up his feet on the desk and lit up a cigar and said exactly that. Brando is back. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna cash in absolutely. Well, so it, it, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep on pressing on. Um, sort of. Uh, there's there's a little bit more about this butter story that I maybe don't want to miss. Um, but in the meantime, I think it's worth pausing to sort of hear from Brando himself when he talks about his relationship with women. Um, let me see here. Here's what he had to say. I have always been lucky with women. There have been many of them in my life, though I hardly ever spent more than a couple of minutes with any of them. <laughs> I've had far too many affairs to think of myself as a normal, rational man. But somehow I always thought there must be something, someone out there. There was something. Huge alimony payments. And if not that, trouble enough for 50 men. With women, I've had what you might call a Rolodex life. I enjoy identifying and pushing the right emotional buttons of women, which usually means making them feel that they are of value to me and offering them security for themselves and their children. The less likely I was to seduce a woman, the more I wanted to succeed. 
doing rude things to nuns was always a fantasy. In a hospital once I tried, her name was Sister Raphael and she was quite beautiful. She often came to my room to see how I was feeling. And because there was something unusually extroverted about her, I thought somewhere in her, there's got to be a touch of the tart. So I tried and failed. Mm. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he was a monster. Let's, let's be, yeah, let's the, be clear. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, again, this is the art of darkness. Yeah. Uh, so we, we get into the dark side of these artists. Yeah. I, I'm pretty committed to, to saying that we're dealing with some sort of a monstrous character here. Right. Very complicated. Um, yeah. But also, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but monstrous, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. Well, so it's, it's around this time um, that Wally Cox dies. And there's an incredible story about this because they had been friends all through their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and of this, Brando says, um, in a lifetime of making friends, and I think this is, this is a breaking point for Brando. Between Last Tango in Paris, the renewed fame of The Godfather, and now Wally's death, we're, we're heading toward a precipice. Um, yeah. <laughs> in a lifetime of making friends, none was ever closer or more important to me than Wally Cox. We'd been playmates in Evanston at seven or eight, and we both moved to New York about the same time. He was making a living as a silversmith and craftsman of fine jewelry, but would entertain us with hilarious monologues. We, re we resumed our friendship and it lasted until he died in 1973. I'm not sure I will ever forgive Wally for dying. He was more than a friend. He was my brother, closer to me than any human being in my life except my sisters. We were born in the same part of the country, came from the same culture, shared the same values, and had the same sense of humor. Well, hmm. when he died, I felt mysterious, or I felt mystified and could not accept it. I took some things that belonged to him, including the pajamas in which he died, and saved them. Even now, I have conversations with him. I curse him, USOB, and chastise him for dying. I also laugh at things when I'm alone because I imagine that he is there uh, laughing with me. Not a day goes by when I don't think of Wally. Sometimes I wander around my house, pick up one of the chestnut uh, walking sticks we brought home from a woodland long ago, think of something funny he said, and laugh. Then I swear at him because he was an alcoholic who didn't take care of himself and died from a massive heart attack. Jeez. Well, <laughs> you want to talk about darkness and the dark side. Yeah. It goes even deeper. Uh, he contested the, uh, the ashes with, Ooh. with, uh, Wally's widow wow, wow. and, uh, and snuck them out. He, he Whoa. stole them. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Huh. So his widow chose Brando to spread the ashes in an area where Cox liked. Unbeknown to the widow, Brando kept the ashes, sometimes carrying them around with him and usually having them nearby. Whoa. He still had them when, wow. he, when, he, uh, when he died. Wow. Um, kept so, Wally with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he kept Wally with him uh, all the way. Yeah. And uh, this was a case of kind of... Um, yeah, uh, the wild man and the mild man is what yeah, they say. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, well, it, it also, there's a, 
you know, for us just talking about the fact that he's a monster. Well, he wasn't a sociopath, right? No, it was no. something else, right? He was, he had a, he had a heart and he cared about people and things and, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't, uh, Wally himself was a, was a, like a comedian and an actor too. Okay. Um, yeah. I wouldn't, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to diagnose Marlon Brando. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. even know where to, where to go. Right. Um, right. He, he was in Tahiti when Wally died, you know, and he started yeah. taking over. He, at, at one of the wakes or the funeral, he said, I was Wally's friend, nobody else, you know, like he was, <laughs> I mean, you know, it just was like really kind of almost wow. obsessive. Yeah. Um, huh. I mean, it, it's, it's wild. Uh, yeah. So he held on to the ashes sort of against the widow's um, wishes, Jeez. which is uh, pretty wild. That's... So, mm, yeah. Well, so we have, we have that uh, happening. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to fast forward here, moving through the filmography. We're going to have some more fun, interesting anecdotes. Then we're going to get to some really dark things that happened mm-hmm. in the nineties. Um, okay. We're still in the seventies. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna flash forward here. He makes um, the Missouri Breaks mm-hmm. in that's released in '76. That's the film with um, Jack Nicholson, right? Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah I think I might have said Nicholas early. Jack Nicholson, yeah. uh, and it's just like it's set in Montana, where the Missouri River. There's a place called the Missouri Breaks, and it's yeah. just a bizarre kind of postmodern western. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, it. <laughs> The, the New York Times uh, said that it was an out-of-control performance uh, by Brando. Um, is it like, is he flamboyant? Like, is it? Yeah, it's, yeah. he's using different accents in different scenes. He oh, plays wow. this assassin who, okay. it's, it's a really weird movie to watch. It's very, very strange. Uh, if it happens to be streaming and you put it on, just watch it because it's yeah. like, apparently... Like there's a writer from the Guardian who said that the film has ripened over the years. It's gotten better, saying mm. um, it you know it was derided as kind of like a weird self indulgent folly. But what they say is uh, today its quieter passage, passages resonate more satisfyingly. Well, its lunatic take on a decadent dying frontier seems oddly appropriate. Perhaps for the last time, there is a whiff of method to Brando's madness. He mm. plays his hired gun as a kind of cowboy Charles Manson, serene <laughs> and deno- demonic. Okay, and that description out sounds a pe- yeah. like worth a shot. Yeah, sure. you gonna watch yeah. it. It's yeah. nobody. Nobody goes. Wow, have you seen the Missouri right. Breaks? I mean, right. it's but it's this movie where it's like it's Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Randy Quaid, Harry mm-hmm. Dean Stanton. You go, this is gonna be great. Okay. Like when yeah. Harry Dean Stanton showed up, I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. And then yeah. you just watch it and you go, hmm. <laughs> okay, guys. You could do that if you want, I yeah. guess. What, yeah. <laughs> what's really what's going on here with the Missouri Breaks guys? I don't know. It's just strange. It's just a strange huh. movie, and you sort of sort of have the the sense that maybe there were some drugs involved. You know, it's yeah. hard to know uh, yeah. what's going on. So um, I want to keep in the filmography here. So let me make sure I have it uh, because we're going to come up to one of the big ones, which of yeah. course is uh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, what a yeah. good movie that is. Oh, You're talking it's about incredible. yeah, yeah. Incredible. Well, so he does um, the Missouri Breaks. He does Superman. 
oh, which yeah. was a big deal at that point. Yeah. And he, he just banged them for all the money in the world right. that he could I'm get sure. his hands on. Just yeah, banging not? them for money at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, does a film called Rayoni. I don't even know what that is. And he does Apocalypse Now, which uh, sort of was famously uh, a difficult film to make. And yeah. he was another big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they they did not expect him to to show up weighing what he did. Yeah, he was like um, fifty pounds overweight, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, and it was it was. Uh, well, and he's rough. supposed to be he's supposed to be you know having gone native in the jungle, like you. Know? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Does it really work? Right. Well, so I'm reading from the Independent here. Uh, they're already having problems, but worse, Brando hadn't learned his lines or done any preparation whatsoever for the role. So Coppola had to start from scratch with him. Mm-hmm. He had to bring him up to speed on what the thing was about and who the character was. So that's rough. That is uh, rough. Yeah. That, that's not a good way to, uh, yeah. to make a movie. And, yeah. um, you know, he shocked everybody when, when he arrived. He was 300 pounds. You couldn't see around him. And you're totally right. Coppola... Yeah. Um, envision Kurtz as lean and hungry. Uh-huh, right, <laughs> and right, right. It was like, what the hell was he going to wear? There was no green beret uniform on earth big enough. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper, the production was shut down for a week while Coppola read Brando the script out, lie, uh, out loud. He couldn't, even, he, he couldn't even be bothered to read it, huh? 900 yeah. people in the jungle, you know, just cast waiting. and crew just sat and waited. Then one day Brando shaved his hair off mm. and arrived at the idea of improvising his scenes and letting Coppola's camera capture whatever came out of his mouth. Wow. Uh, self-conscious about his killer whale appearance, Brando also stipulated that he dress in black and for the most part be filmed in shadow. Which worked really well. It actually, actually. did. Yeah. It actually yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. And of the course- The dynamic, I mean, for folks who haven't seen it, the dynamic of this big bald head in she cut like um, sort of merging in and out of shadow is kind of captivating really it, it's it really is a great film uh yeah. and and again this is another film that brando is really only in uh sort of like the last the last passage of the film uh, yeah i mean he probably yeah. has uh typed out he probably has less than 10 pages of dialogue five pages of dialogue probably right. something like right. that but yeah. they're great. I mean, for people who haven't seen it, to me, when we started doing this episode, one of the things that I've been hitting on Twitter is those bits where he's talking from Apocalypse Now because I find them, I think they're great. But yeah. Yeah. That's an acting masterclass to me. And it's funny that like, yeah, he barely knew the lines and he was probably improvising parts of it and he's super overweight and does the, the, the casting almost doesn't make sense in a certain way. But like, yeah, knocks it out of the park. Yeah, who better? And now, I mean, and this is one of his great talents is that you can't really imagine anyone else, anyone else in that yeah. part. Um, yeah. You just, it's just all there and that's that's the movie and and uh, totally incredible. He didn't get on with Hopper because um, mm-hmm. Hopper had that drink and drugs lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, to the point where they had to be filmed separately on alternate nights. Oh, really? Uh, Hopper was not doing well and, um, oh. you know, at one point, this is a, this is a, bit, a bit of a, an aside, and Dennis Hopper will be a good one to do. Hopper's uh, performance is great, too, in that film, mm-hmm, though, really. yeah. Mm-hmm. Coppola came to Dennis Hopper and said, what can I do to help you play this role? And Dennis said, about an, uh, an ounce of cocaine. <laughs> so, uh, 
times personalities were, in this times one. were a little yeah. different maybe yeah. but maybe not that different yeah yeah <laughs> right <laughs> i don't know yeah. i don't know i wonder what went on on the set of the joker yeah right yeah. right <laughs> well so we've got apocalypse now and then he makes some he makes some more movies he appears in the freshman mm. uh, oh, okay yeah. but after this it's like we're sort of getting into a period of um you know it's kind of winding down here yeah. and um he would only do five or six movies um, after this. Uh, and now we got to get into the last passage of his, of his life and some of these things that happened to his children. Because I think it's, um, I think it's really important to, again, we're, we're focusing on the darkness and his story mm-hmm. is one of these stories about uh, his strained relationship with his parents and how this would almost come full circle. So let me just pull up what I need to do this. Um, how do you, what do you think about uh, Marlon Brando right now at this point, Brad? What, what, what impressions are you, are you left with? Um, I mean, it's like he's got demons. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Um, the, the sex stuff is always like, to me, it's, I almost feel worse about that than I do about the drugs because you're hurt, you know, you're potentially hurting people along the way in a more direct way than if you're just, you know, shoving drugs into your system. Yeah. So there's part of me that's like, well, man, and there's the ego stuff is also hard for me to look past, you know, just the fact that you're an egomaniac and you don't really care that you're, eccentricities and pickiness are affecting other people. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, you're making 900 people wait in the jungle. Well, like for some people, this is just like their livelihood. They're not trying, you know, they don't yeah. have, and they don't get the opportunity to make everybody wait. Right. And you're so the, you're the great friend of the, of the native American and of the working right. man and all the right. rest. And right. then in your, but in practice, you're, you're acting like a complete lunatic and a diva. Right. Uh, right. But you still get a legendary performance. Yeah, and that's the, that's the flip side is that literally um, Kurtz, Marlon Brando's character, talking to, um, uh, is it Michael Douglas? Why am I thinking Kirk Douglas? It's not Kirk it's Douglas. Sheen. Sheen, oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Martin Sheen, yeah. I don't know, I mix the Douglases up in the Sheen. The Douglas yeah, that's, that's all right. Whatever, but... Though that interaction, that whole scene, once Sheen, this whole set of scenes, once Sheen gets up to the up to where Kurtz is, is camped out, is one of my favorite moves in cinema. So, and it's because of Marlon Brando. So, I got to give it to him. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Yeah. Uh, so, one thing about Brando in the '90s that I think is really interesting is that um, he was friends with Michael Jackson. Um, I kind of remember this. Yeah. 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 So apparently Brando confronted um, Michael Jackson about the abuse allegations. Mm -hmm. And this was an interview that um, happened with prosecutors during the trial in 94. Hmm. And Brando said, I I had asked him if he was a virgin and he just sort of laughed and giggled. Brando said, um, adding that Jackson was uncomfortable with the F word and was yeah. too embarrassed to speak openly about his sex life. Mm-hmm. So he grilled Jackson about the allegations. Um, and Brando said, with this mode of behavior that's been going on, I think it's pretty reasonable to conclude that he may have had something to do with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my impression was that he didn't want to answer because he was frightened to answer me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting aside. It's kind, of, it's kind of wild to think about this late Marlon Brando, if you can imagine him around the time of the island of Dr. Moreau. Have you seen that film? Yeah, I did years ago. Yeah, yeah like not, yeah. The, not, not the greatest film ever no, made, kind no. of an odd one. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, imagine so, that and him, my, him and Michael Jackson being friends. It's, it's hard to understand how how they would even interact with each other. It's very, yeah. yeah. Oh, without a doubt. But I, I wonder if they, I mean, they, they may have had something in common in terms of their, you know, their, their extra eccentricity, but also the yeah. degree of their fame. Yeah, that's true yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Well, we need to talk about um, uh, Christian Brando and Cheyenne Brando uh, mm-hmm. as we come to the end here. Um, so there was an incident involving um, Christian and Cheyenne that would end up in something like a murder. Uh, mm. And, and then ultimately um, Cheyenne suicide. Jeez. So 1990 um, Christian Debbie Brando um, fatally shot Dag Drollet, the boyfriend of his half sister Cheyenne mm. at his father's residence on Mulholland drive in the Hollywood Hills. Um, he ended up pleading manslaughter. So the way the story goes is that Cheyenne was accusing Dag of domestic violence uh, and Christian drinking, got quite angry. um, Took a shot. And uh, ended up shooting him, claimed that it was sort of, you know, he went for the gun, something to that effect. Um, And he ended up doing, he he ended up doing five years. I mean, Mm -hmm. he, he, he pleaded out to, to the um, voluntary manslaughter yeah. charge. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough. And this is, you know, early life. Christian was shuttled between his mother and father. His parents became increasingly hostile and abusive toward one another. Yeah. And there was a custody battle, 12-year custody battle. Oh she God. was uh, an abusing drugs and alcohol. Marlon eventually won custody, who was 13. Mm-hmm. And... At that time, Marlon described his son as a basket case of emotional disorder. Marlon was a distant father, spent little time with Christian, who was raised by nannies and servants, and he moved between Hollywood and Teddy Aro, um, his father's private island. So can you imagine this right. lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Marlon continued to have relationships with multiple women, fathered yeah. numerous children. Um, Christian said the family kept changing shape I'd sit down at the breakfast table and say, who are you? Oh, geez. I mean, it goes, it it gets even deeper. In 72, while um, Brando was filming Last Tango in Paris, Christian was kidnapped by his mother, took him to school, brought him to a gang of hippie friends in Baja, California, Mexico. Wow. Promised them $10,000 to hide Christian. Wow. Then she refused to pay, hid the boy. Marlon had to hire a bunch of detectives from an agency go extract him named the investigators oh my god and uh you know i think that's a good show title marlin and the investigators (laughs) yeah 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 um i mean so he yeah his father would visit him uh in washington state um during his teen years he dropped out of high school and began drinking and using acid Mm. uh he was an occasional actor, 
His father would visit him in Washington and purchased him a cabin where he practiced artistic welding. Okay. Uh, and then he would divide his time between Washington and the Hollywood Hills. So just mm. an awful situation. Um, yeah. The story about the, the killing is um, a few days before the incident, Drollet had flown in from Tahiti to Los Angeles to visit Cheyenne. Cheyenne was, was visiting her father along with her mother. Cheyenne would not get off of, get out of Tahiti very often. Oh, okay. um, both were staying at Marlon's house. Um, Brando had known the Drolet family for years. Christian had met Drolet for the first time several hours before he shot him to death. No way. Uh, wow. So, I mean, Cheyenne told Brando, Christian Brando, that Drolet had been physically abusive, which may have been untrue. Christian Brando said to a reporter from the LA Times, she went off on this bizarre tangent. Hmm. He was drunk. He confronted Drillette and he shot him. Wow. <laughs> you know, did not intend to kill Drillette. I just wanted <sighs> to scare him, he said. So mm. let's talk about full circle. Yeah. You hate your father. Y- you know, Marlon hates, Mar- you know, Marlon Jr. hates Marlon Sr. Yeah. And now this is happening to your family. Right, right. That, um, that, that, all that pain is just getting passed on, you know, yeah. generationally. Jeez. Yeah, and worse. Ugh. I mean, now, now you're, right. your son, you have all the money in the world. You own your private right. island. Yeah. Uh, but now your son. You can't, uh, you can't help him. Yeah. In a way, like it's, it's too late to help him. Yeah. And uh, it's only a few, a few years later um, that uh, Cheyenne Brando, uh, would would end up in a in a terrible car accident. Um, so she, after the trial, her mental health really started to decline. Sure, he kept going into rehab, psychiatric hospitals. She publicly accused her father of molesting her. Um, <sighs> he denied both. You know all the accusations. Um, she was formally diagnosed with schizophrenia. Oh gosh! Yeah, it became um, isolated, and there was a there was an automobile accident uh, that, and she was a model as well. She's beautiful, yeah. just yeah. just absolutely gorgeous. Sure. Yeah. Um, but she she ended up in a uh, an automobile accident that disfigured her, oh. and she had her her ear was torn. She had a lot of damage. Mm. Of course, Marlon's paying for all the best plastic surgery, but it ends yeah. her. It ends her modeling career. Yeah. Um, and uh, in April of 95, she hanged herself in Tahiti. Um, and neither her father nor Christian were able to attend. Um, Jeez. So, Ugh. 1995, uh, that's going on in Marlon Brando's life. And that's right around the time that this biography, that I, this autobiography that I've been reading from, mm-hmm. um, comes out comes out okay. so none of that is really addressed yeah. it's a little evasive about sure. certain things it's in the still in the book yeah some of it either hasn't happened yet or he's still unpacking yeah. it right yeah yeah well so i mean jeez uh, so that's he, 1995 yeah There's dr moreau has already happened right yeah i mean and we're coming to an end here yeah uh there's a story here. It doesn't really necessarily seem appropriate, but he's talking about a 13-year affair he had with a Beverly Hills woman and her husband. Uh, you know, he talks about her husband. He didn't have an affair with the husband, but he, she was yeah. married and he had an affair with a woman for 13 years. Wow. Um, 
just uh, really, really funny. There's yeah. a story he's telling here about sneaking in at night and then the husband is home <laughs> <laughs> and how mortified he was. Uh, just in, just, just an incredible character. And yeah. not at this point, I don't think gonna, he's not going to learn anything. No, I mean, I you're, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, yeah. And no. if you want a sense of where Marlon is at the end of his life, watch the, watch the, um, the Connie Chung interview and watch the interview with Larry King. Okay. Um, yeah. So I just want to, I just want to wind down here. Um, yeah, yeah, he, he, we're getting into the late nineties and that interview with Larry King is really good. They sing a, a number. They do a little ditty together. Uh, Yeah. Together. (laughs) Brando kisses him on the, on the lips at one point. Okay. Okay. Uh, and Larry King really makes a point about Brando. There's an interview with King after Brando passes away. And one of the lines that King says is, there's nothing PR about him, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And about the theater, Brandon did, uh, Brando didn't miss it. It's three hours of blood, sweat and tears every night. Yeah. And you get bored. Right. You get bored. But I love that idea of Brando's house not having a single artifact that would indicate he's an actor. Yeah. No movie posters, no awards, no... No, he's yeah. like... King said, I, I didn't even know where the Oscars are or right. were. And Brando himself said, I don't know. I think my secretary has them. Right. Right. <laughs> Can you even yeah. imagine? Yeah. 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 No PR. No. Yeah. Just didn't, all yeah. out there. Right? Right. 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 In your face for you. And yeah. uh, there he is. Yeah. Well, so we're coming to, uh, to the end here. And um, just want to get exactly the year and the time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, such an, inter- an interesting character. There was even a little controversy on Larry King around um, a comment that he made uh, about, about Jews in Hollywood and sort of hoping that they would maybe be a little more s- sympathetic to certain causes. Um, mm. And Larry King defended him. And, and, I, and I believe Larry King is Jewish and said, you're, yeah. you're, you're not, uh, you know, Marlon Brando was not, was not an anti-Semitic or bigot. I think that's pretty, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you can accuse yeah. him of a lot of things, but that's... <laughs> we definitely can accuse him of a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it was on July 1st of 2004. So well into our, our lifetime, he yeah. saw the invasion. Oh, I, re- I remember it happening. Yeah. yeah. He was 80 years old. He died mm. of uh, respiratory failure from pulmonary uh, fibrosis with mm. congestive heart failure. So yeah. the trifecta yeah. at the UCLA Medical Center. Cause of death was initially withheld. Um, He had diabetes and liver cancer. Jeez. Um, Shortly before his death, and despite needing an oxygen mask to breathe, he recorded his voice to appear in The Godfather, The Game, once again as Don Vito Corleone. Really? However, Brando recorded only one line due to his health. An impersonator was hired to finish the lines. That's cool, though. (laughs) It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, God, you wouldn't think he would be willing, even willing to do that. That's really okay. yeah. If he okay. lived another ten years, maybe he would have been doing. Yeah. Maybe he would have done more voice uh, over for the games. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you don't have to show up anywhere. Right? Well, this is really, really sweet. So Brando was cremated, and his ashes were put in with those of his good friend Wally Cox, oh. and another longtime friend, Sam Gilman. Hmm. Uh, they were scattered in Tahiti and partly uh, in Death 
Valley. Okay. Um, So, yeah, that's Marlon Brando. And here's here's a, a little bit from the end of the autobiography. I can draw no conclusions about my life because it is a continually evolving and unfolding process. This is him in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I don't know what is next. I am more surprised at how I turned out than I am about anything else. I don't ever remember trying to be successful. It just happened. I was mm-hmm. only trying to survive, much like a newly fertilized egg. I look now at some of the things I've done in life with astonishment. 50 years ago at a party at my home, I climbed out the window of my apartment in New York and clung to a balustrade 11 stories above 72nd Street as a joke. I can't imagine myself ever having done that. I have difficulty reconciling the boy I was then with the man I am now. Mm -hmm. I suppose the story of my life is a search for love But more than that, I have been looking for a way to repair myself from the damages I suffered early on and to define my obligations, if I had any, to myself and my species. Who am I? What should I do with my life? Though I haven't found answers, it's been a painful odyssey dappled with moments of joy and laughter. In one of my letters from Shattuck, the military academy, I told my parents, in a play written by Sophocles, the Antigone, there are lines that say, Let be the future, mind the present need, and leave the rest to whom the rest concerns. Present tasks claim our care. The ordering of the future rests where it should rest. These words written 2,000 years ago are just as applicable today as they were then. It seems incomprehensible that through the 15,000 years since our species came into being, we have not evolved. (laughs) Yeah. So also a big thinker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a big thinker. He was wrestling. He was a cosmic mind. He was wrestling with some very heavy, very big things. I mean, you're talking uh, about your debt to the species, man. There's, there's, yeah, yeah, for sure. And that is the life, the strange, monstrous, very sexually uh, promiscuous life of Marlon Brando. That was great, man. You took us on quite a ride. So yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate all the work you put into that and, and, and tying that together. And man, what, what, a, I mean, in some ways, what a man, what a character. Yeah. What, what a monster too. Yeah. A monster. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like the, 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 the audacity of a man. I mean, and it rem- reminds me of the, um, the, mu- the musician, uh, junior Kimbrough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but, all his children were kind of local, weren't they? Yeah, they were around. Yeah, they were around <laughs> they were in the zip code. <laughs> and, yeah, and and so you have Marlon Brando, just this audacity to to just uh, to just bang yeah. and not. We're not worried about children. We're gonna have more children. Don't worry. I'll set you up with a house. And just the the yeah. I get the craziness of that. The mm-hmm. just the the strangeness of that, but also the being above it all and probably too much fame too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. All the guardrails are off mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. nobody's going to stop you because you, you played Stanley Kowalski in streetcar. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No one was ever going to tell you. No one ever really told him no. Right. Except that one nun, God bless her. He would talk yeah. about, yeah, God bless, God bless that one nun. <laughs> the, the one that got away. Yeah, uh, right? I mean, but what an awful thing to, to try and seduce a nun. What a yeah. strange acting out and, and uh, bizarre yeah, fixation. I think yeah. sex was drugs for, for It Brandon. seems like it. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it's pathological. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a story he, he tells about 
his in the book about his his rage, how there was mm-hmm. this anger under him, uh, just just under the surface, always there. And he was, I think maybe it might have been in New York, maybe New York or L.A., but he was out one night and there was a, a singer who was not that good looking and was kind of mediocre, but mm-hmm. she was up there trying. And apparently some, some fellas at the other table were talking smack and, and mocking her. Mm-hmm. And he, apparently he got so angry. And then one of them recognizing him tapped him on the shoulder and he f- flew into a rage and said, if you want to live, never touch me again. <laughs> okay. So a All force. Right. And do you really right. want Colonel Kurtz or, or, the yeah. guy, or, or Vito Corleone coming down on you? I don't think right. so. No, I no. Mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, absolutely. He had that power. And that's why those roles worked, right? It's because he did have that power. You believed it because it was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, right. There's a reality yeah. to it. And there's this strange parabolic arc to his, I don't even know what you would call it, but this kind of like rhythmic arc to his his uh, career where he he was the young, sexy heartthrob. Then he has the box office dud, comes back all corpulent and weird <laughs> right makes like an x-rated movie the same year he makes the godfather right. and Very what bizarre. a comeback and yeah. after, you know yeah. he couldn't yeah. do it again in the 90s it was sort of over it's kind of too but, late yeah i mean again i i, can't, I really can't think of a bigger comeback than i mean we were talking about johnny cash and his comeback yeah. this yeah. is a comparable yeah. level of yeah. resurrection from oh, that yeah for period, I mean, that 10 year t- period yeah his I mean, his most memorable role roles are like right at the end and right at the beginning of his career. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Apocalypse Now, Goodfellas, uh, Goodfellas, Godfather, <laughs> Godfather, <laughs> and then you know, Streetcar. Those are probably his three most memorable roles. So yeah, that's on that's, the waterfront. That's wild. Yeah. On yeah. the waterfront. Right. Well, uh, Brad, what do you think that what do you think Marlon would be doing now if he was uh, if he was around? What do you think? See, I don't think he'd be acting. This is one guy. I feel like he's not doing the thing that he was known for anymore. He's sitting in Tahiti. He's got a, you know, a hot little Tahitian, Tahitian girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, he could just be doing and, VO for, for video, for video games, games too. I mean, he just, <laughs> yeah, right. Just, Maybe that was perfect for him, man. It's like, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't got to like put up with all that much. You just, he crossed you know. over from theater to film. Yeah. Redefine yeah. film acting, redefine yeah. stage acting, helped redefine stage acting, redefine yeah. film acting. And so who knows what he'd be doing. Right. Right now. Yeah. 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 He loved money. He had right. a lot of kids. And right. he, right. say what you want about him. Yeah. We definitely got into some dark stuff. You can cancel yeah. him if you want. Never watch yeah. The Godfather again if you yeah. want. Which but, I, uh, you know, that's your loss. That's, that's on you, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, make sure you, you tell us on Twitter Right. So we know how virtuous you are. Right. <laughs> um, but he did, he did look after the kids at least materially, but yeah. the, the tragedy yeah. of those two, those two children and Christian wouldn't live very long. He died yeah. quite young and oh. that that's tragic. You got to be there as much as you can for your kids. And yeah. No yeah, matter what, sure. you, even if you're a, you know, a God of an actor, right. There's, right. there's really, it is your responsibility. Yeah. 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 Amen. I'll draw the line there. Yeah. All right. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, find us on Twitter. It's at Art of Dark Pod. At yeah. Art of Dark Pod. Brad's been manning that. That's yeah, fun. Holler at us. Yeah, yeah, we post he posts fun, interesting uh characters. We want to hear who you want us to do. We really enjoy it. Yeah. Uh yeah. and uh that that's always fun. We also have a Patreon where we do after dark episodes that are an extra twenty or thirty minutes. So we're gonna do that right now. So if you want to subscribe yeah. to the Patreon, that is at patreon.com slash art of dark pod, and we are at art uh, art of darkness or art of dark pod.com. Yeah, it's, it's always art of dark pod. 
Yeah, and then and and on you know iTunes and Google mm. Play and yeah. uh, Spotify and all those. So yeah, yeah, subscribe. That's cool for us. And, and if uh, you don't want to chuck us a little money, that. just at the very least, give a uh, go give a five star review. Yeah, that, all right, that'd be great. So Brad, we're going to reconnect and, and uh, deconstruct what what the heck just happened. And yeah, uh, absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, all right, man. All right. The all horror. Right. Stella! Hey! Stella! It's pretty good. It's pretty good. All right, I'm going to give it a try, though. <laughs> Stella! <laughs> <laughs>